I was at North Central on third watch as a brand new senior corporal. Um, you know, I had, had five, six years on the department at that time. The, the call that I had received that, that night was a, was a critical missing call involving a, uh, a missing uh, little girl. And so, you know, I'd responded to that call. This, uh, this family is, comes towards me and, and a father hands me his little, his little girl that he had found floating in a swimming pool, an apartment complex swimming pool. And so trying to do CPR on the little girl, trying to get the family members, the, the number they were growing, there was, you know, it started off with, you know, there was probably 15, 20 and everyone was praying and, 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 you know, crying. And, and I was trying to eventually just trying to do all, you, all I could to, to save this little girl's life and, and, uh, you know, hoping the entire time that she was going to just, uh, you know, like in the movies, just wake up and, and, and spit up a bunch of water. And all of a sudden, you know, everybody's gonna be celebrating. And, and of course that didn't happen. So, uh, the ambulance gets there and, and then they start working on her and, and, the scene just kind of flashes in my mind a few different scenes of the the hospital scene where the medical staff are all working on her and um and then a scene where they notify the family that their their, their daughter had uh had not survived so this happened on my monday and so you know i had five days to go to get to my my days off and um just kept trying to shake it just really you know this feeling and just kind of feeling sad just felt sad for this family i couldn't imagine and it carried on for several days, for, for at least three days. And it wasn't until the uh, the fourth day that that um, I was pulled over somewhere. I was I was writing a, a report, and I got a message from Lee Bollinger, was the police officer that sent me a message to my computer, and you know asked me what my location was. And if you know Lee, or if any of you guys, uh, you know Lee was a, you know he was he was definitely the you know kind of the crusty old uh, police officer. He's had a lot of uh, you know very negative, had a lot of opinions and. Um, and you know, at the time I, you know, I didn't really want to, uh, he was probably the last person I wanted to talk to at the time. Just, you know, I didn't want to hear, uh, anything negative. So Lee pulls up window, you know, to window on my squad car and very directly says, um, Ruben, how are you? And I says to him, you know, I'm fine, Lee. And he, he goes, you know, he gets right into it. says, you know, Ruben, that, that call you went to the other day, those can be tough. And I said, yeah, yeah, I wish I could have saved that little girl's life. Uh, and he says, you know, Reuben, 20 years ago, I was, uh, when I was a patrol officer in uh, Central Patrol, he says, I went to a car wreck where a, a, a little boy, a little nine-year-old boy, had, had, uh, was in the bed of a pickup truck, and the pickup truck had rolled over on top of him. And he says, that little boy was alive when I got to the scene. He says, and I spoke to him. He says, um, eventually they you know, lifted the truck up and they, they, you know, rushed this little boy to the hospital. And he says, Reuben, that little boy died. He says, and I have spent the last 20 years of my career angry. He said, I've been mad at my sergeant. I've been mad at the police chief, been mad at the mayor because I've been mad at this city. He says, and I just don't want to see the same thing happen to you. And he says, why don't you go talk to somebody? You know, he specifically says, you go to church, go, go talk to somebody at your church. And I know that I just, I said, okay. And, and that night I drove from that, uh, from meeting with Lee, I drove straight to a uh, Catholic church that was down the way. And I knocked on the door and it was late, you know, I was on the evening shift and, it, and I knocked on that door until someone answered and a priest answered that night. And I talked to him and I said, you know, I can't, can't uh, really sleep. I haven't been eaten. I said, you know, told him, 
story. It's this little girl, you know, this little girl drowned. He says, Reuben, did you, did you know this little girl? And I said, no, I never knew her. He said, did you know the family? I said, nope, never met them before. He says, what you're describing is grief. He says, you're, um, you're not eating, you're not sleeping. He goes, and, you, and you, you, uh, you're grieving for this family. He says, what you're doing is you're asking God to give you some of this family's pain so that they don't have to carry it all themselves. He says to me, that is protecting and serving at the highest level. That is going beyond the call of duty. We have deemed all of these calls routine for you know, really 140 years in, in this police department, uh, when in fact they are not routine. They're anything but routine. You know, we're we're just kind of trying to bring to light this this idea that if we continue to call those routine calls, then how in the world is a police officer going to feel comfortable coming forward and saying it's affected me? When I look at some of the stigmas that exist in our profession, the things like alcoholism, depression anxiety, divorce, uh, suicide. You can't help but wonder if that cumulative effect of those, that sadness or those tragedies or those griefs or those memories, those things that they're seeing, if cumulatively those aren't precursors to some of those stigmas like alcohol, depression, and anxiety. And if they are, this could be one of the biggest missteps in the American model of policing. You know, I will say that there's been years and years of medical research that has talked about the effect of uh, the stressors and effects of being a police officer. Academia world and scholars are writing about the effects of policing. And, and while it's great and we appreciate the attention and the awareness, the reality is that we don't need to know how stressful this job is. We're very, very familiar with it. We're all carrying the lumps to show it. Academia world and the medical world is not gonna change policing. We are. No one else is. So if this thing's ever going to get done, it's going to get done by us. And every single police department that's listening to this needs to know that. Um, we're the ones who are going to get this done. We're the ones who have to get it done. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree, and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow, we can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. you want to know who you are don't ask act action will delineate and define you Thomas Jefferson welcome back ATO family today we are going to discuss a familiar topic on this show wellness we were speaking with a guest who grew up in Floresville Texas and moved to Dallas at age 22 to become a Dallas police officer 
graduated in 1995 in Class 248. He was assigned to the Southwest Patrol Division. He has worked many assignments within Dallas Police Department, including narcotics, public integrity, major crimes unit, intelligence, and he has been a deputy chief over investigations. However, in fall of 2021, he began working on an assignment that would attempt to change the entire culture of the Dallas Police Department and help provide for those who save others. After many focus groups and research, this guest came up with one conclusion. There is not a police department in America that is more primed for a robust wellness unit that helps break stigmas and save lives and careers than the Dallas Police Department. Since 2016, the city and department have been reeling from July 7th. Every year we revisit this date and honor the fallen and quietly bury the feelings of the survivors as we must continue to serve the city. This story is about the creation of something lasting, something that will go on longer than this guest's career and go on longer than this podcast. It is our honor to welcome on Dallas Police Assistant Chief Ruben Ramirez. Dallas PD Assistant Chief Ruben Ramirez, thank you for joining us on this ATO stage. Glad to be here. All right. Uh, the great Danny Canetti is actually, we, we got him out uh, off the uh, APC and actually in the uh, in with us today to talk. Uh, great Sergeant Kent Wolverton's a part of this. Um, guys, thanks for being here. You bet. Uh, Chief, we're going to get into a lot of topics, and it's going to be very wellness heavy, but we're going to talk start off by talking with your early career down in South Texas, young you know, Ruben, growing up, great family. We're going to talk about your family because you get pretty impressive family. Um, you good with that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sure. All right. Where did you grow up? Floresville, Floresville, Texas, about thirty miles south of San Antonio. Oh wow, that's wow, that's a long ways. Yeah, heading towards Corpus Christi. It's close to the border. Um, what kind of what did home life look look like in the Ramirez household? Well, so my parents are farmers. My parents are, you know, hay farmers. So we grew up uh, farming. And, um, yeah, my dad is probably uh, the hardest working man I've ever known in my life. I've never seen anyone with a work ethic like his. 76 years old, still farming. Um, my my mom is, is just one of the best human beings that, that exists. She's just a servant-hearted she she's a she was a farmer's wife for one which is tough enough as it is and um just gives uh you know endlessly just uh, she just helps people um prays for people she's just she's, she's a she's a fantastic woman so uh great mom and dad both still alive um 75 and 76 years old still living there uh but it was good it, it was good uh you know slow life it's a it's a small town mostly it's pretty much a farm town a lot of peanut farmers, hay farmers. Um, but yeah, it was a kind of a Friday night lights type, you know, country town. You have any siblings? I do. I have an older brother. Um, my older brother recently retired from the military. He was a colonel in the Air Force. Um, I have a uh, little sister who is a school teacher. She, she teaches um, English as a second language. And um, 
yeah, they, you know, she's married to a, a, a 5A uh, head football coach. Uh, just actually got the job up here in Colleyville, so he's moving to the area. So it'll be nice to get some family up here. And uh, my brother, after retiring, moved to San Antonio, and he and his wife um, live on the north side of San Antonio. Nice. Yeah, I love I love San Antonio. The Riverwalk is just man. That that's one of my favorite places to go to relax. Yeah, that's great. So, how did you get into having an interest in serving as a law enforcement in the law enforcement field, growing up in a farming household? Yeah, it's funny. I you know growing up in a in a small town like that, especially being a, a farmer's kid, you it's like you can't wait to leave the small town. And then, you know, ironically, I, now I feel like I can't wait to get back. But, but at the time, I wanted to, you know, just wanted to leave and, and um, moved up to San Antonio. Uh, I was living with my brother for a while there, my brother and my cousin. And then uh, started school, uh, went to college, you know, didn't really follow that. You know, college wasn't really my thing early on, I think. I kind of, um, you know, I was going to school every semester. And somehow or another, I just, you know, the, the class load, I started dropping a class here and there and thought, I'd pick that up later. And. Uh, anyway, just kind of did that for a few years, and you know, I was recognizing that college wasn't really working for me. I didn't think, and um, I, I guess after a few years in, I should have been getting ready to graduate, and I, and I didn't really like the numbers weren't adding up. Uh, but you know, I realized that one morning that you know I was living in an apartment that my parents were paying for. I was driving a truck that my parents bought for me. Um, you know, it's it going to my parents were were paying for these things as long as I was going to school. And, and um, I don't know, just really, you know, I, I knew that it, I wasn't really, uh, I don't think that's what they meant when, when they said, yeah, as long as you're in school and, and every semester I was really only finishing a class or two. And um, I saw, I read the newspaper that Dallas police was having a job fair and me and I convinced a few of my buddies and we went out and, and uh, you know, inquired and, and eventually started the process. And that's kind of how, uh, you know, a few weeks later, mo- most of my buddies all, got weeded out for some reason or another and um i had that that tentative offer to 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 come to the dallas police uh, department as a recruit and uh, talk to my folks about it and then next thing you know i was you know driving to dallas in a very the smallest u-haul they had because i didn't really have a lot of stuff and uh, looking for a place somehow that i ended up in grand prairie of all the places and and, um yeah but that's how it started what it what was your uh perception of dallas and dallas pd whenever you applied Back in that was the ninety five ish. Yeah, ninety five. Ninety five is when I was. I started December of ninety five. Oh, Dallas was. I mean, it was like the ultimate big city. You know, of everything from. Uh, I had never set foot uh, and hadn't been in Dallas, but I, I loved the Dallas Cowboys. I think the TV show Dallas was was probably a big uh, influence yeah. back then. And. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I thought the idea of, of of moving to you know a big city like Dallas, being a police officer here, uh, just it just sounded. Uh, like it was filled with you know, opportunity. Well, growing up in a small town, did you, did you think about doing the small town policing, or or going maybe even San Antonio? Did you did you consider uh, that department, or you know the departments around that? Not early on. Early on, I didn't really you know I never really had a, a real interest in it until I was out of uh, you know Floresville, living in San Antonio, going to college. And I, then I did have interest in it. Uh, looked at several other departments, and I, you know this is probably a story that we, we hear a lot in Dallas. You know we. We applied for other Texas police departments. Uh, Dallas generally is really quick. You know, they, they expedite. And, and so um, uh, I was interested in San Antonio. I uh, was probably more interested in Austin. And then, uh, uh, but, you know, 
Dallas was the one that kind of gave me that offer early on. So it was the biggest apartment too, right? Yeah, you, yeah. yeah, definitely. So you you get down here, you pack up the little U-Haul, and you get down here, then you start in the academy, and you start talk, talk about that and yeah. about some things that happened yeah. in the academy. And the academy was was probably not the best experience, uh, just for a couple of reasons. I, you know, the academy wasn't what you would expect a police academy to be. You know, it's almost like a shopping center. And you, you know, you guys know that. And uh, so, you know, from like curb appeal, that's not there. Um, but but the class, what was interesting about our class was, you know, we started off with a pretty good sized class from what I recall is about 40 people in our class. And it just seemed like everybody that I liked or, you know, would get along with was getting weeded out. And, and we were one of those classes that started with 40 and I think we only graduated 20 wow. by the end of it. So. Um, yeah, it was just kind of like, man, you know, you're up here, you, you know, you don't know a lot of people in the first place. You're getting yelled at all the time and, and just kind of going through that drill. And then the people you do like are, are slowly getting weeded out. So it wasn't uh, about midway through. I started to wonder if I'd made the right choice, started thinking maybe, you know, maybe go back and get back on a tractor. I don't know. Well, did you take that? Did you take it? Was that serious in your mind to like maybe walk away from it? Yeah, you know, I remember a time there where, um, you know, I started thinking that I just missed home, you know, kind of missed my friends and, and everybody. I didn't know anybody up here. Uh, um, and, yeah, I remember having conversations with my with my folks, my dad, you know, and, and I, I told him, you know, hey, I don't know about this police academy thing. I, I think I, I think I might want to come back, you know. And, and he said, he goes, yeah, he goes, okay. He goes, you know, come on back. And he says, but uh, as soon as you graduate, and he was very clear that you started this uh, you, you, um, you know, you gave your commitment and, you know, and, and so you're going to finish it out. And as soon as you, as soon as you graduate, if you don't want to be there, you know, come on back home and you just, you know, kind of something to go along with that one, something that just it brings to memory. It's just, you know, one thing that my, um, my dad and my, and my dad's dad, my grandpa always talked about, man, was the, when I was growing up was if you put our family name on something, you do it the best you can. You don't have to be perfect, but you have to do it the best that you can. And uh, so, you know, I think that that came out in his message that hey, you started this, you committed to this, finish, finish the academy first. What year was that? What class number? Uh, 248, class 248. We started in December of 95. Nice. Where was the academy at that point? It was on Redbird. Yeah, it's the same place it is now. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, I remember we had that. The temporary place. Yeah, yeah. it was a temporary yes. academy. We had like a a painting on the wall is still in the break room like the like the academy of the future because i i started january 97 and it's still there they're we teasing have, you this will be here in the future we haven't got there it has flying cars it had flying cars like the jetsons so <laughs> so when you you get through the academy and i'm get, i mean clearly you decide to stay so you make a decision at some point the academy started to appeal to you right yeah. And you decide you get out there and what, what division did you go to? Yeah. So I started off at, at Southwest was my first assignment. Um, and, and, you know, to your point about the Academy starting to appeal to me, there, there are a couple of people in my class that I got to point out that, that really uh, were, were probably the difference makers in why, uh, you know, I graduated with Mike Mata was, was in my class. Uh, Who's he? When, I'm not familiar with him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mike. Uh, so who's now the president of the police association mm-hmm. and just, he's still a, you know, has always been a real good friend of mine. Frederick Frazier was in our class and, um, you know, still a really good friend of mine, a uh, strong guy. And, you know, there were a couple others, but, but yeah, that uh, Jerry Wante was another one. Oh yeah. SWAT operator. But yeah. So we, you know, eventually you, you start to, to click and make some, you know, some, some friends that, that you start 
you know, really kind of supporting each other through it. So it turned out okay. And by the end, um, you know, I was, man, I, I wasn't, you know, completely changed my mind about going back home and, and was pretty excited about uh, my first assignment at Southwest. It's a pretty strong class. I mean, you, you uh, Frederick and you, y'all both went to Southwest together, right? Yep. And Amada went over to Southeast. But, um, yeah, that that's a pretty stout lineup there uh, coming from one class. Yeah, I'm proud of them, man, all of them. Yeah. Oh, they, yeah. They're, I mean, long. their footprint here, just like yours, is going to be be here long after you leave. Um, so you've had many assignments. I, I listed off several in your intro, but – I want to ask you, what was your favorite? I think my favorite assignment was probably still narcotics. You know, narcotics is a that was a that was a that was a good role, um, interesting role for sure. Why that? Why is that? Well, I think you know, first part is is kind of the obvious that you you take this you get into this role where you're you're doing things that are completely counter to everything you've done up to that point. You know, in your life, you're 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 trying to hang out with the criminal uh, element and, and fit in and, and, you know, you're trying to figure out that piece, both physically what, what, what you look like and, and, um, and, and what you talk like and those kinds of things. And I think it's like the ultimate challenge uh, to get in there. And um, probably the reason that I enjoyed the assignment as much as I did was, you know, again, I just, it was a real good uh, team of detectives there during that time. Um, uh, some of those guys were just, they just took it as a, like their, it was their their personal challenge to out hustle the hustlers and that's kind of the philosophy that was the that was the culture down there and and they were good at it so you know you 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 tried to be really good at that role and and um and it was it was a fantastic role to to kind of beat people at their own game and and get in there and make those bigger uh deals and those kinds of things uh but you know it comes with a cost for sure it's not a not an easy um you know mind switch to to get into yeah because i mean you're kind of becoming somebody that you were brought up by your great parents to be the you know totally opposite you're having to play a character in a role to go into a seedy environment what about so, a learning curve getting yeah. up there i mean you weren't an inner city kid so was there a learning curve as far as becoming someone in this criminal element yeah. Yeah. I think that's, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I learned is that, you know, you will very likely not be able to go into someone else's turf, someone else's world, someone else's environment and beat them at it. Uh, so what becomes the objective is you have to figure out like the things that, that, that really are you, the things that you really do have in common and almost try to exploit those things. And, and, and for me, you know, it became this, uh, you know, this, this challenge of, uh, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to make money, for example. I knew that, uh, that uh, you know, I worked extra jobs, you know, before that and those kinds of things. So so that was one similarity that, that I had as an undercover narc with the people in the narc world is making money. So I kind of really exploited the, you know, I'm just trying to, you know, make a little extra money, you know, hustling this stuff on the side just so I can pay off some bills. And so you kind of push that narrative and, and it's hard for the, the bad guy to really detect that because there is some truth within that, that space. And so... Um, you know, I think we had some success there. I think the learning curve and the piece that really starts to get you is that, you know, in those assignments, you have to, uh, you have to lie a lot. And, and so if you, if you, if you, if you don't lie a lot normally, or you try not to lie a lot, but then you're in a, in a, in a role where at least eight hours a day you're lying, 
um, you know, that can have a residual effect on you as well. And, and so I think those are the kind of things that make it real challenging. And they're not, you know, those aren't mainstream things. Those are probably not things that you even talk about when you, when you become a detective or you get into those roles. But, but they should be because uh, th- those things can, uh, you know, they start to affect the, kind of the way you operate, the way you think. And, and then, you know, from there it kind of can snowball. How hard was it for you to shut that off? Like shut off that role and, you know, go and go back to personal life? Yeah, I think it was a lot harder than, than I, I probably uh, thought at the time. And, and, and you know, looking back, I, I think it, 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 was, it was a lot harder because I know that, for example, some of the guys that I went to narcotics uh, with, you know, all really good guys, really good character guys and all that. But, but I know, you know, towards the end of our – I was there for about five years, and most of us were. And, and by the end of that five-year run, I mean, we were all, you know, casualties of something. We were either – you know, our marriages were struggling or, um, you know, alcohol and, and other types of things. So, uh, yeah, I think I think kind of drying out afterwards, you know, is uh, you, know, you got to put some work in to 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 level off for sure. Did you promote to sergeant to leave? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I promoted to sergeant. And that, that's the reason I love it. And I'll tell you, you know, again, as I recall, you know, back then uh, it was an assignment that I, I wasn't going to voluntarily leave. And, and I probably did a lot of, uh, you know, consideration about whether even I, whether I wanted to even accept that promotion because of how much I at the time you know I was really liking it uh, looking back you, and you know when I left too I promoted the sergeant and I was transferred my first assignment was northeast on on deep nights and I remember thinking okay I got to figure out how to do my year and get back to narcs that's really all I wanted to do and it probably wasn't until about six months into that shift that I started thinking maybe not you know maybe maybe it is uh you know, I, I don't need to go back there. And then I, you know, fortunately with a couple of mentors and other people that had kind of said, Hey Ruben, um, you know, you've already been there. You've already got that box checked in narcotics, you, you know, go somewhere else, kind of broaden out a little bit. And that turned out to be really some of the best advice that, that I was given. And, and, uh, you know, just kind of taking five year stints at different, at different assignments just kind of makes a, a career, you know, flow and you get the opportunity to learn a little bit more. And, and so, yeah, that, that turned out to, to, to be a, a good, good guidance i think that's pretty common where people either don't want to promote because they love the assignment they're in and then once they do promote they think they want to go back but if you've done something at the level of a senior corporal in our department and you have to go back as a supervisor it's not as fun right it's drastically different well i couldn't tell you i didn't do anything fun really as a senior corporal but it's not as much fun when you go back and supervise and you're put in different positions but you can take the experiences you had and then apply them in other positions within the department. I think there's a whole lot of value in that. But at the same time, it, it is very valuable to have people who have experienced the detective side of things as a supervisor because now you have somebody who actually understands why you're doing the things you're doing and what you're actually doing. And the learning curve for supervisors who have not experienced those things is pretty steady, steep. Is that the word I'm looking for? Mm-hmm. More steep? Yeah. Um, yeah, I so I get what you're saying. I, I would I think a lot of guys want to go back to what they're doing, but I think that it's better for them to go someplace else and use the experiences that they have. Yeah, that's so true. You know, if we I think we get into these comfort zones and and we think that's our, our safe place and 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 you know I mean to some degree uh, it is, but it's just kind of thinking about the bigger picture and and uh, you know just that opportunity to kind of grow and like you said apply that stuff you learned apply it somewhere else and. And then you know, learn something new. It it it's just a piece of policing that we need. Uh, you know, uh, I think especially in some of the 
the difficult assignments that we have here. You know, your your child abuse cases, your homicide. There's probably no better example. SWAT. You know, there's no better examples of you get really good at these roles, and so it, it makes all the sense in the world for you to stay there or bypass a promotion to to stay there because you are. You know, you're a key player. You're a big contributor, and but you know, at some point, balancing out what is truly you know more beneficial for you. Uh, your families and those things is, is where we, I think we need to make some tough decisions. Did you find, you know, did you find that supervising friends and people you knew just as Ruben in your episode, I'm, we're going to get into the role you're in now because you're pretty, you're pretty high up from a sergeant level at this point. But how hard was it for you to start having to be a supervisor to friends and people that knew you before? Cause I, I've seen it. I've, I've, I've seen some other people that, can get too comfortable with and won't look at you as a supervisor, but sometimes a supervisor has to supervise and lead. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, like anyone being a sergeant is, it, it's uh it's one of those roles where you, you when you become a sergeant, you want to be a good one. And usually our definition of good is like, I want to be the, the sergeant that looks out for the troops and I want to be the sergeant that they like. And, and, and that's really, um, you know, you want to you want to advocate for all the things that you saw as a, a PO or a corporal that weren't being done right, and and those are all you know those are all good things, uh, but I think one of the big conflicts is is we want to get along and be liked by our troops, and and what our troops really need more than anything is they need somebody to to lead them. They need somebody to be a good example, to be knowledgeable, uh, to keep them out of trouble, um, and help guide them to 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 be have successful careers. That's what that's what our troops need. They really don't need a friend in that role. They, they need somebody who's, who's good and who, and who cares. And so I think we struggle a lot of times as young supervisors, young sergeants, you know, in, in that role trying to find our niche. So it takes some reps before you start to get your niche and recognize that, yeah, I got friends and, and, um, and, and some of these roles and some acquaintances. And, but the reality is that the best thing that I can do for all of them is, is really try to be good at my role, to really be genuinely good at the role. And I think if you can accomplish that, the rest of them start to line up and the rest of the roles start to make sense. It's like a mentorship. Basically you have to be a mentor. So, yeah. so you promote, you went to Sergeant to Lieutenant. Where did you work as a Lieutenant? Training Lieutenant? Lieutenant roles. Um, I had a lot of good ones. I've had good ones throughout my career. Really. Um, Lieutenant, I was in criminal intelligence, uh, major crimes, um, patrol. Uh, I was a, I was a patrol Lieutenant in the Southeast on third watch. Um, and uh, I think it's about it. Where did you go from lieutenant? What rank was the major uh, yeah. rank going then? Yeah, I promoted to to major, and I guess it was like 2017. Okay. Yeah. And where was that at? Well, I remember, you know, part one of my roles as a lieutenant was I was the legislative liaison, so I, went, right. I was I did that role for a few sessions, and um, I was in Austin when I got the call. Uh, I was in Austin at the legislative session when I got the call that I was being promoted to major, and. Um, so uh, my first assignment was at, was at Northwest patrol. I was there for uh, a little while. And then, um, I think from there, that's when I, when I was transferred to internal affairs division as a division commander of internal affairs, that's a, and that's kind of a beast of an assignment, uh, for a number of different reasons. That's probably the, the most challenging just cause you, you just, uh, you, you almost, you're in this spot where you know, you go in there knowing that, well, something needs to change about this division. And so you're trying to do your assessment and, um, it's like you're, you get a lot of pressure externally that, Hey, y'all are being too easy on cops. And you get a lot of pressure internally saying y'all are being too hard on cops. 
and then you got you know the associations that and, and the uh, police you know uh, attorneys that are you know constantly you know trying to you know, lobby and, and and get things to to change so you're uh, and then same thing from the the chief you know there's just a lot of pressures that continually happen in that role it's a it was a it was not anything I ever really wanted to do uh, but it was definitely a learning experience for, for sure probably the most challenging major role I had you probably took some things away from it from the way you manage and and lead right yeah yeah definitely and and you know probably one of the things that gives you the biggest perspective or lens on is just uh you know the things uh, that you know cops are are dealing with man the things you know there's a there's a lot of um, there's a there's a there's just a lot of pressures to the police role that that you know you see it in your career and and, and you see it you know in your surrounding but in a role like that you're seeing it from everyone's, you know, you're seeing all different types of things coming in and you're seeing those trends and those, those patterns. Um, and, and it just, you know, validates everything that's ever been written about the stressors of this job, um, and, and the conditions and things that we put our officers, uh, in and yeah, it's, it's, a you know, and then, you know, again, if you, if you, so you're trying to kind of advocate and, and recognize those things, meanwhile, trying to balance some of the other external, you know, agendas and pressures and, and that, you know, expectations that people have. And, and so, yeah, it just, it really does. I mean, I probably had, you know, high blood pressure in that, in that role. Uh, um, I was, I was there for, I think a little over two years and was glad to get transferred out of there. And when you left that other, was you got promoted to a one-star chief? Yeah. The, okay. Yeah. And you and I, we, when I was up in legal, uh, you were the one-star chief, the deputy chief that was over uh, investigations and capers, and um, that included homicide, and SIU, uh, sex assaults, and assaults, robbery. So you and I got to uh, get pretty close on that because uh, I was dealing with the case filing, and pretty much all of your detectives uh, fell under that. So how was that role for you? I mean, going to that type of investigation because – you know, those are very high profile cases. Yeah. Uh, I like that role a lot. Um, I think, you know, it was eye opening to see the, the caseloads that we, you know, our detectives are carrying. Um, obviously everyone knows that we all struggle with manpower and trying to, you know, balance out keeping enough of our officers balanced out at the, at the follow-up roles as well as, you know, the frontline roles. Uh, but in investigations, yeah, you know, they were, these guys are carrying heavy caseloads, assaults. It was unbelievable the the, the the to manage those those load those caseloads along with, you know, we don't have the best record management systems, and uh, there's got to be some better tools out there that that really that make the all the different steps that you have uh, to cover in in, in those follow up assignments uh, just a little bit more streamlined and and uh, less tedious, and uh, we didn't have them. Um, you know, the RMS system, you were the one teaching us that program. And it's just like, good gosh, man. I mean, these are cops and we're not the most tech savvy people, you know, by design, but you know, we're using the, the most, the least, uh, user friendly applications. And, and so you just get a really, uh, profound respect for the work that they do every day. And, and, um, and yeah, the high profile cases for sure. It, it, you know, the, the casualty, uh, from an emotional standpoint, what that you take on when you're, having to invest, investigate, uh, you know, this domestic violence or sex assaults, uh, these ag assaults and robberies. And then, you know, of course, uh, then you get into the pinnacles like the homicide and SIU that are investigating these, these, you know, police shootings. 
um, you know, these homicides and, and, uh, you know, when you have to scrub those cases in today's world of investigations where there is so much video evidence out there. First of all, there's so much evidence out there from, you know, digital evidence from cell phones and, uh, but, but, you know, then you get into ring doorbells, body cams and pole cams and, and, you know, all of the video that you've got to comb over. Uh, and in many cases, your, you, your, your relationship with the victims and their families to try to understand the case, there's just a, an immense impact on the, on the mind in those roles that, uh, that, again, I don't think gets recognized or, or um, acknowledged enough. Now the detectives, uh, the detectives having to manage all that and collect all that and, and everything you just mentioned as far as all these different outlets of evidence that were not, they weren't, that you didn't have to deal with that whenever you and I heard on, right? Yeah, yeah. Ring doorbells. So putting all that together and then, as you said, our management databases, they're, yeah, they're not the best, and, but you, it really is like polishing a turd and trying to make a procedure that is the most user-friendly that you, you work with what you have. And it's not easy, and especially when you have to grab evidence from all over. And some of the evidence may not, you may not uncover it for months later. You didn't even know a ring doorbell existed yeah. on, on an offense. You've held every rank on this department except for two at this point. Um, which one was your favorite and why? And then when you're done answering that one, which one did you feel you had the most impact at? Good questions. Um, I think the one that, uh, that I've, that I have the most impact in has been this one. Uh, I really, I really, uh, I really like the assistant chief role. The bureau chief is a, is, is, it's a great role. Um, that might be a factor of a couple other things as well. I, I do believe that our executive command staff is is uh, is better than um, than I've really seen, uh, including uh, our chief and and our first assistants. I mean, we just got a really we've got a really good balance up here, and and I think it makes the our um, ability to to recognize things that processes need to be changed to convey them up to to and and uh, to the boss and and really get that approval to do it. It's just uh, it's, it's, it's lean, it's, it's available. Um, it allows us to be successful. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think I've appreciated this role uh, by far the most as far as the, um, what was it? Was it the most challenging or, or the, your favorite, my favorite, uh, it, it's this one, it's being the bureau chief over tactical and special ops is, uh, I mean, there's no better, uh, there's no better bureau to, to be over. This is, I mean, this is really, this is all the cool stuff. <laughs> this is all the stuff that most people you know, I think when people think about going into policing, it's usually for one of the roles that's that falls in under this bureau. You know, we from our our um, you know our SWAT operators to to undercover, uh, you know, fugitive, vice, gangs. I mean, those are great roles. And then you have a canine mounted mounted um, <gasps> drones, helicopter. It, it's just a. It, it's really a, yeah. It's it's by far my favorite that that is really the the premiere i would say of the cool stuff but to i don't even know how to say it really but i don't want to gloss over the detectives i mean we have a fantastic investigative services here our our detectives solve cases at fantastic rates i mean they're, they're just really good at what they do and that allows 
the other groups to work even more. So it's all symbiotic. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it, it all works together and you've seen, you've been, you know, your assistant chief, I, w- I want to describe what your role is now. Okay. Well, as far as other, other departments across the country, they have different hierarchies. So we have, we have uh, chief Eddie Garcia. He's a four-star chief. We have one of those now for the first time I've ever seen, we, we have two, uh, three-star chiefs, right? And then now you're one of five two-star chiefs. And then it goes down to several deputy chiefs and then to major and lieutenant and sergeant. And that's the hierarchy. So you're you're really close to the top. And you really are. And that's why I think your, your influence um, and what you're doing now, we're going to get to here in a minute. But what you're doing now really has been a driving force because of because of your uh, your influence on this department. So in fall of 2021, you got an assignment, and a lot of re- research had to be uh, done by you. Um, can you describe what this was? Yeah, in the fall of 2021, we were in. Um, we had we had had several uh, IED investigations, I guess, that had come to uh, be heard by the command staff, and they were you know, usually involving allegations of misconduct. They were uh, officers basically that had been um, alligated on for something and they were coming to their hearing in front of the uh, executive command. And so um, what we noticed was there was just a real strong pattern of, of, of officers that were being, uh, having hearings for these really, these three patterns, these, uh, these three, three allegations. And it was usually something anger related, something, um, relationship related some either poor choice of relationship or some sort of disturbance within a, a relationship or alcohol uh, and alcohol really was involved in in almost all of them and after one of the hearings in in the fall of, of 2021 um chief uh looked over at me and said you know Ruben, i want you to um do an assessment uh, of the department and 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 find out what resources do we have available for our officers and and um and are those resources being utilized and then he kind of added just um you give me just an overall you know state of 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 where you know how the how the 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 men and women are doing and so um you know you think he gave me a suspense day he wanted it by you know by the end of the year and so um anyway that's when we set out to uh, just kind of get some input from different groups throughout the department. We call them focus groups, but the reality is they were really just conversations. I just met with as many people as I could, as many, uh, you know, watches, uh, investigative groups, special ops groups, and just started having conversations about those things, about, you know, you know how are, um, you know, what kind of resources are, are you utilizing or, or would you utilize the resources we have? And, and, and those conversations really uh, are what were, you know, just eye-opening um, when we when we really started diving into to some of the things that our our officers were carrying you started looking into that you basically had to take the temperature of uh, the dallas police department and come and diagnose a problem and you've been on at that point like you know for 25 years in this culture did you did were you surprised by some of the feedback you got the of of the state of the of the department or you were you already aware and seeing it within you know the the groups you have worked, you've commanded, you've worked in and commanded several groups where you're already thinking, God, this, this is a problem. Some, something needs to happen with this. 
Yeah, I think when I look back, I I, I knew that that we were a hurting department. I've kind of felt that uh, for a while, really, for about the past seven years. I, I felt that we were we were a department that uh, that had some deep scars and some things that that had never really been healed. Um, so for that reason, I, I you know I was glad that the chief gave me this role to kind of look into it. Um, I think the focus groups and that I met with and the conversations I have really validated that. But I think what I'm most, what I was most surprised about during those conversations was um, that that officers uh, after I mean we had to wade through some difficult conversations. There was some some blame and there was some anger and some accusations about things that we didn't do, things we failed to do. Really, you know, me as a police leader at the time, uh, you know, uh, it was a lot of it was directed towards command and. And so we had to wade through some of those conversations. But I think what what surprised me the most is that um, once we, you know, once we acknowledged the, that, yeah, you know, we haven't done things right in this police department and and we have failed to, to recognize or to really even acknowledge in some cases some of the things that you're carrying and that we've been carrying, um, you know, that officers started to open up. And that's when the real you know, that's when the real gold started to happen. You know, as I look back, some real candid conversations about um, the emotional part of the job, you know, the things that, that officers were carrying. Um, and then it just became, man, like the floodgates. Like, and, and I told Chief, I told Chief Garcia, I need a little bit more time. Um, but, you know, the early uh, prognosis is not good. You know, there's the early diagnosis is that, that there are some things that, um, that, that, uh, are wrong and and um and uh, you know i remember him telling me you know okay just uh, get it done and so yeah the real I, I think the real eye-opening piece of those conversations as i look back was just that once we waded through some difficult conversations and really had to own us as a as a command had to own some failures uh but really just acknowledged the similarities and what we were carrying uh the the that really uh, people were willing to share their stories and and, and I have no doubt that it's because of that input from those groups that our program is, is where it is today. Well, I think that our department's check engine light has been flickering for a while. But after July 7, 2016, I think it's been on since 2016. And was was that incident a common theme in, in the conversations you were having with people? Yeah, July 7th came up on almost every in almost every focus group. It came up. Um, you know, from the event itself uh, to uh, you know some of the the failure to 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 do anything differently afterwards was one of the things I heard a lot. Um, you know, one of the things that I heard that that uh, I, you know I think it really stunned me uh, that I hadn't considered as far as um, the aftermath of that of that day was um, you know. And just so obviously everybody knows that, you know, about the, the downtown, uh, you know, ambushed July 7th, 2016. But uh, and it was, you know, it was just a, a sucker punch. There was no no other way to describe that. A haymaker came out of left field and went in and it caught us off guard. But um, so the event gets handled. Um, and then we are like the focal point of the entire country for, you know, for several weeks. And and the things that came up in these in these focus groups where, you know, people talked about the, I mean, the entire country converged on our city, right? We had cops that were here 
answering our calls. They were doing our follow-up investigations. You know, we had every type of therapy, equine to, you know, emotional support dogs to every therapist. And there were this, everything was here. Um, and, and for about the next three weeks, you know, we were, we were burying our, our officers. And, you know, the thing that, that happened after three weeks was, uh, was what was stunning was that, you know, after about three weeks of this incredible, incredible support from almost around the world, um, everyone left, you know, everyone had to go back to, and they had to, right. They couldn't answer our calls forever. Um, but, but that, that, when that message came up that, you know, we really didn't have a foundation of support here that, that kind of helped us say, okay, well, here's what you do next. You know, you just continue to, you know, to visit with your counselor or your therapist or, or, you know, um, those things weren't in place, man. And, and so, um, one of the things that we were really left with was like this feeling of, so, you know, we're, there's still protests still happening, you know, we're, there's still calls. And, and so we all really just did, I believe, uh, the one thing that we knew to do, which was just go back to work, you know, just pretend it didn't happen and just try to grind it out and try to go. Uh, and, and I know, you know, for myself and I was a Lieutenant at the time at, at Southeast on third watch and, uh, you know, I, and I didn't know what to do. Uh, you know, I had sent a, a, a squad, uh, a, a response team to, to that protest that night. And I, you know, I checked in on them just minutes before and, you know, they were fine and everything. And, and then that event happens and, you know, you, you see your team later on and they look like they've got that thousand yard stare, you know, that everyone just, uh, and that didn't go away. And, and I didn't know what to do for them either. And, and so again, it just seemed like the only thing that we knew to do was just dive into work and just try to work and, and see if we could, you know, wish it away. And, 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 uh, and then what we're finding now is that we never did. And, you know, the, uh, effects of that night are still being felt on this police department today. And, and I don't know that they will go away. No, those scars will always be here every year, every, uh, year we get, you know, we, we honor the fallen and we revisit that date and this department in the city will forever. And uh, especially the people that were on the department and there's people that were long retired that still have, you know, guilt and remorse that they couldn't be here to help. That's just, it's just a, a terrible incident. And yes, it was not putting that night in the re rear view mirror for the department was not the best uh, course of action. And that's what we did. Uh, Cause that's all we knew to do. Yeah. So after you did all this research and, and you got with, with the uh, focus groups and you start sitting down with, with other people and putting a plan together, how did that look going back to Chief Garcia and say, hey, here's, here's what I, I think we should do? Yeah, so um, once, I, once I was, had done those focus groups and really started to get some information back and, and uh, I mean, I have to, I, I got to say that one of the things I did uh, looking back that, that really helped a lot was I pulled a, a core group together. Um, and that, and just to kind of help me map out like, Hey, here's what I'm hearing. And that core group was, uh, you know, Kylie Hawks was on it. Uh, she had done a lot of work post July 7th to try to build something like this back then. And she deserves to be acknowledged for, for all that she put together back then. But, um, there wasn't, you know, I don't know if it just, cause there wasn't the same appetite, uh, for this back then, uh, as there was with our, you know, now, 
but um, you know, hers didn't didn't get to you know get off the ground. And and uh, Tina Schultz, Deputy Chief uh, Schultz, was part of that core group. You were part of it, um, Danny, and it was it was really there that we really started to. Uh, to kind of map out what this, the, you know, what we were going to need and, and what this thing might look like. And um, I went back to the chief, uh, talked to him about it, and, and uh, man, to his credit, I don't know the guy's a visionary, but, but I told him, you know, things uh, are not good and, and we've got to do something. And, um, and he says, tell me what you need. And I told him I need full-time resources. We need, we need an actual unit that is going to, you know, be designed for the sole purpose of supporting our men and women, something that is full-time, that's not voluntary. And, um, you know, he asked how many resources I told him, I think at the time I, I told him six, I said five and a sergeant. And he says, I'll give you five and a sergeant and a lieutenant. And, uh, and then man, next thing you know, uh, we were, we were, we were rolling. Yeah. So I remember how surprised you were. You, you and I talked after he told you, yeah, I'll throw a lieutenant in there too, mm-hmm. and I, I was I was shocked by that that we were even getting the numbers because I want I want to point out that most traditionally most peer support models across the country are train a handful of people up they're all volunteers and they'll sit over on kind of on the sidelines and if somebody needs them then they'll be available. Uh, what you you had a vision for, which is something different, it was it was proactive. Why did, why did you, why did you want to break? You knew we had to get away from that traditional model and go the proactive route. Why did you, why did you feel that was needed? Yeah. The, 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 the reactive model, first of all, the, the peer support, that's generally what you hear throughout this country. Like everyone talks about peer support and, you know, first, I guess, first of all, I think that peer support is in desperate need of a, of a rebranding. I think that we, uh, historical models of supporting our men and women through peer support didn't work. And so we'd probably all be better served to think about changing the name, uh, you know, just from, for optic standpoint, because if we're trying to sell this to our troops and, and we're calling it peer support and they're thinking, well, wait, peer support's been here forever, hadn't done anything. I, I don't know that that'll get us, uh, to where we need. And, and, and we do need to focus on the granular as it relates to, to mental health, to, to emotional support, to wellness, we got to we got to revamp. We we don't need a, a new fresh coat of paint on it. We need to scrap it and build it. And so, the reactive models of peer support a are all voluntary. And um, you know, I said uh, you know I like to say often vo- voluntary assignments are for bake sales and Santa cops. They're not for the emotional support and the mental health of our men and women and, the, and their families. Um, so, so we didn't want to look like something that was just there waiting for our cops and when they you know until they get into a, a you know a difficult time uh, an emotional time or a crisis god forbid but we we wanted to get out in front of it the best we could and um and so we knew you know we were trying to figure out a way to get uh in front of the crisis and and to be proactive because the proactive piece was going to be something that that we were going to um we were going to use as a preventative measure, like, you know, like discontinuing no longer the days of waiting for people to be in a mental crisis before any type of support gets initiated. And then that's how, uh, in part, how the checkpoint model uh, was, was, was built or came up. Yeah. So we talked about seven, seven and that incident was a, a very rare and unique incident and for the for the world and it's a, it's like when 9-11 happened and then 
a, an incident like that, those mass casualty situations, and you have like a Uvalde and, and things that are make the news and, and get worldwide attention. But I want to talk about the cumulative effect on constant ex- exposure to trauma that police, fire, any first responder, EM, you know, paramedics, they deal with every day that doesn't have that doesn't make the news. It's the constant cumulative effect of trauma. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, you know, when we did again, back to those focus groups, one of the things that came out came about that was really stunning after we had uh, got through the, the some of the difficult talks and, and, and July 7th and those types of conversations happened. Um, one of the things that came out repeatedly was when when officers were willing to share with me the things that they were carrying, the things that were that they that were difficult for them uh, in policing. Uh, you, you know, it was surprising that it, you didn't hear anything about the dangers of the job. You didn't hear about the, the, the fear or the bullets. Uh, those things weren't what they mentioned. What they mentioned instead were things that surrounded the, uh, the routine calls that we send them on every day. They talked about the um, fatality car crashes. They talked about the, the uh, you know, in a sense kind of graphic, but they talked about like the contorted bodies at fatality car crash scenes. They talked about driving through those intersections and always, you know, visualizing that car crash and, and, and position of the body every time they drove through them, that it, it stuck with them even when they're, you know, later on when their, their families were driving through there or when their kids were driving. They talked about the, um, the sound of uh, grieving mothers at homicide scenes. You know, some officers shared things like, you know, just just the these sounds that they couldn't get out of their their heads from just you know mother you know learning of the, the of the the death of their loved one. I heard um, you know I heard things from detectives about the most difficult part of their job was giving death notifications, and they said things like, you know, every time we don't get to solve a case, uh, when the family member calls me for an update and I haven't solved their case, it's almost like I'm. I'm reopening that wound for them. And and then uh, SWAT operators, one of the things SWAT operators said in, in some of those discussions were uh, the the uh, the hostage, uh, you know, losing a hostage and the, the second guessing of of their steps and their progressions and the timing of them in those in those situations and that they never forget that. And so, you know, cumulatively when you take those things right there, those aren't what most people think the the difficulties of our job is you know these are the things that our officers are carrying on their minds uh daily and then if you look at that you know cumulatively from a quarterly or from a yearly and then you start tacking on you know a 15 year officer or or a 5 10 15 20 year officer um that's a heavy heavy load but those were the things that were mentioned in these in these meetings that really uh told me that you know our our focus has got to be on the emotional part of this job. And, and, and I will tell you that, um, you know, when I look at some of the stigmas that exist in our profession, the things like alcoholism, depression, anxiety, uh, divorce, you know, uh, suicide. And you think about you, you hold that up, you know, side by side with what the kind of stuff that that we were learning in our focus groups about the emotional part of this job, you can't help but wonder if that cumulative effect of those, that sadness or those tragedies or those griefs or those memories, those things that they're seeing, um, if cumulatively those aren't precursors 
to some of those stigmas like alcohol, depression, and anxiety. And if they are, and, and then this could be one of the biggest missteps in the American model of policing. Yeah. It, yeah, I think you nailed it. Yep, you nailed that. <laughs> the, uh, the big thing for me was never the visual. It was just, it seems like it's more the, the constant exposure to just poverty and, and the criminal element. You know, it's it's not the it's not the dangerous cause. It's not the the traumatic cause. It's just the almost a constant beatdown. Like you're carrying all that stress for other people, also. You know, if you think about cops, that you know why we become cops, right? Probably, uh, you know, to a probably almost to a unanimous degree, we come here because we want to help people, right? We come here because we want to protect, we want to serve, and how could you be a person who wants to protect and serve as a career and then go to areas where there's poverty and where there's sadness and and where there's grief or or tragedy and not be affected by it you those things they're counterintuitive there's no way for you to to be one and not extremely impacted by the other and so it's like it's it spells a recipe for um disaster if we're not adamant and intentional about building something proactive that, that supports that. It's interesting. Kent brings up just the exposure to poverty. Cause when I look back at my career, something that's really stuck out to me now is probably the best years I may have had so far on this department were on the CRT team in Southeast. Great time. just fantastic memories. But I look back and I was probably the angriest those years working. And I realized when I take a look in the rearview mirror on that, I think I was just worn down with seeing that poverty or the only people we dealt with, we weren't really answering calls for innocent people asking for help. Instead, we were constantly going after shitheads, bad guys, and seeing the worst of humanity. And I was so tired of seeing kids in these trap houses with porn playing, dope everywhere, guns everywhere, nothing but thugs. And these kids are dropped off at like a daycare in these trap houses, just seeing the worst of humanity just ground me down. And it's, it's weird because you feel like you're making your biggest impact by, yes, by knocking that element out. But that's what takes the toll on you mentally is I'm doing this, but man, I'm seeing it over and over and over. Yeah. And I, it had the biggest effect on me, especially in home life. And it just hit on a head where I had to go have dinner with my wife and her family one night and the conversation at the table to me was just so frivolous and so not important to me. Uh, you know, to me, I mean, that's how I'm looking at it. It could have been important to them, but I just come from that environment and got into the restaurant and I just, I couldn't even focus on the family or pay attention. My mind was still back there dealing with that crap. And I, you know, and I wonder like how much, how many of our 70% divorce rate are attributed to to that very thing that Danny just described, right? I mean, you you go to to see these things, and 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 you're you're already a person again who who cares about stuff. So you're seeing this, and one of our most natural responses to it, it seems like, is to get angry about it, to be upset about it. And then you go into your family life, and the last thing you want to do is bring the some of the 
the sadness or ugliness that you've seen into your home. And if you're really uneducated or unfamiliar with how to properly communicate, which most none of us really, you know, we don't born with that. Um, then you do the one thing that you know to do, which is just not talk about it. Just, just, you know, just isolate yourself a little bit. And, and man, I just can't help but think that that's not contributing to, to some of these numbers. Oh, absolutely. Well, you also want to shield them from that, that side of humanity, you know, like Danny, and it's on your mind and Danny's mind been on what he just experienced at work and Dylan with, with that part of Dallas. And now he's at a nice dinner with his family and they're talking. He's not even present because he is thinking it's his mind is still back there. And it, cause it, it's hard to get that out of your mind, but you don't want to talk about it. Cause you don't want, you don't want to expose them to what you're having to live through. And, and I think that being present, and then there's a lot of officers, they, they don't, they almost feel uncomfortable going home. They want to get back into work because in some ways, sadly, that becomes their normal and their comfort zone. Going home and coming down off their emotional highs and, and lows, that they're uncomfortable because they don't, and they don't know how to communicate with their, with their significant other because they, you know. And the anger grows in because yes. uh, I don't have space to talk and you're not listening correctly or you're not understanding, so the anger grows at home so it's easier to just go back to work where guys understand because they're with me in this they see this they know what i'm thinking how many times have you been done at work but you just sit there because you're not quite ready to drive oh, home? oh man you know yeah. and and that's just a, a weird one i thought it was just me but after talking with you guys a little bit no. seeing on everybody you you're... there's a decompression time that has to happen at work in order to transition back to home because if it's too abrupt and you just get home it's like, I can't do this. But then you feel like a turd because you're like, I should be at home right now. Yes. But I'm just sitting here and I, I, like, I know I can go home, but I'm just not quite ready to stand up and walk out yet. And then how much does that kind of lend to alcohol becoming just the, 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 the easiest solution, you know, to, to just, you know, have a drink or go hang out with the guys and have a drink. I mean, it's just like, there's so many, there's so many, uh, you know, not, healthy coping mechanisms that have been kind of almost ingrained in this culture that are just right there readily available um and and and, uh, again it just seems like a recipe for for disaster well humans are you know for the most part they're social creatures and when you put at a different level of police officers and first responders they're their own type of of human too and they can and a lot of them are they go out and socialize and they can de- that's how they decompress and a lot of a lot of times they use alcohol to excess and that f- gets them down and some and some people can get them down a road that you know that can ruin their marriage ruin their career and life yeah we've seen that recently yeah yeah for sure alcohol is is just you know even if you if you're not doing it excessively if it just becomes a habit to in order to kind of quiet you know the noise or or just kind of take the the frustration off a little bit you know it's it, it over the course of you know any amount of time that that habit um is not the healthiest coping uh mechanism and and but you know we really never even thought about building in or trying to build in um you know better more more front end or proactive coping mechanisms or techniques well a lot of it's education too i mean just the uh education piece we you know we're going to get into checkpoints and the other pillars of the uh, the other prongs of the uh the approach to wellness with the uh with the unit but just the education piece because i can't tell you how many 
like recently seminars and conferences I've been to, I listen to professionals. I listen to other other uh, peers. They don't even have to work in the city. Talk about their life experience and how they fell apart and how they recover. And then I hear a a doctor or a professional speak on it. I'm like, damn, I wish I had this 20 years ago. I wish I had this knowledge 20 years ago. And that's one thing we're doing as a proactive piece now is we're getting out, educating officers, at least planting those seeds. That way, so you know, you know, far, farming, you know, farming, you can plant a lot of seeds, but that they don't always grow. And, but you don't know till you try to plant that seed, right? And that's what we're trying to do as a, as a department. Planting seeds, check engine light on. You're liking these yeah. metaphors. I had a, I had a, yeah, I have a Rolodex of them today. You guys are not amateurs. <laughs> yeah, I'll downplay y'all so I started. So you got to go ahead. You got the green light to start this uh, this unit up. What was the selection process like for you uh, of, of picking the right people, the right messengers to to basically carry this message that you wanted to put out there? Well, so – you know, it was the idea of, of, of checkpoints was even came up even before we picked the personnel uh, for the, the actual full time wellness unit. And and this part, you know, is, is one of my favorites because, you know, it was during um, some of those conversations that uh, there was. And I'm going to put Danny on the spot here because because Danny was was part of this this uh, this discussion. But when we were talking about wanting to build something that would that would truly help our officers so that the next generation of police at the very least wasn't having to do some, carry some of the things that we're carrying and, and just try to give our officers a chance, uh, you know, for their marriages to, to survive, to have, you know, an opportunity to have a improved quality of life. Um, we, we came up with the idea of checkpoints. And so checkpoints were going to be something where we were going to, we were going to recognize which calls were, were, were harmful or could be harmful and and based on our conversations and seeing those routine calls that officers mentioned like the, the fatality car crashes and the suicides and the homicides we were going to check on people and so um you know and and, and you know, i'm going to paraphrase some of it uh, but but danny was part of this conversation and i and i and he said uh, his response to that uh to to me saying that we wanted to do something that was proactive that checked on people and he says if you if you if you build it that way Without the politics, without the the um, you know big news stories or the celebrating ourselves, if you do it that way, I'll do it. And and I remember um, I thought, man, you know, if I could get Danny Canetti, a SWAT operator, to carry this message, this thing could reach or hit that 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 piece where people actually you know you can actually listen to or people actually you know consider it. Because that's the big, that's the Achilles heel of policing is that you, you talked about earlier that, that, you know, you heard a doctor talk and you thought, man, why couldn't I have heard this 20 years ago? Probably the truth is 20 years ago, you wouldn't have listened to it. You had to be at a point where it became interesting to you. Um, for some of us, you know, it, it depends who's giving the message. You know, it depends the deliverer is the person that's going to be the difference of whether I, I buy into this or believe in it or even give it a consideration or not. And so... Um, you know, Danny being willing to, to take this this thing on, I knew that my role was now going to be, I'm just going to create a lane of cover for him. I'm going to get up front of this and, and give him the opportunity to, to have the autonomy to do what he needed to do or what he wanted to do and just and, and just let him do it. 
And then there were three people uh, that, that when we look back, there were only three people that were the, the three people we were looking at to be checkpoint officers at the time. Um, so Danny was one of them. Uh, Joe, you were the other and, and Derek Cheney. And I distinctly remember thinking if I have Joe King, Danny Canetti and Derek Cheney and Derek Cheney, um, this thing could work. And, and so, you know, eventually though you three wound up building the entire checkpoint program, because I don't pick checkpoint officers. None of us pick check. You guys are the, you have to be a checkpoint officer to pick a checkpoint officer. And so now we've gone from three of you to now 40 of you. And, uh, I believe, um, you know, with 100% certainty, the only reason that we are, we, we have momentum and that we're, you know, being looked at, you know, nationally now for this program is because the people who are carrying the mail on this have their people of character, their people of integrity, people who have good reputations. And if you guys are willing to get out in front and tell somebody, Hey, I just want to check on you, man. These calls can be tough. Um, you know, we've got counselors, we've got some resources, uh, you know, if you're interested in them, let me know, I'll, I'll give them to you. Just having that conversation, there's a layer of vulnerability, there's a layer of credibility that's all rolled into that small little checkpoint. And, and, and that's why this thing is moving. I wanna give you kudos too, as a two-star assistant chief for DPD, is that I've been around a lot of chiefs, where there's Chief Elsie, uh, uh, Goldbeck, I mean, you name it, I've, I've actually had dealings with, and Chief Brown, I've had dealings with certain chiefs and not every chief is receptive to feedback from somebody that is at a much different lower level than they are. And you, from the start of this, you've been receptive to every suggestion. You had an open mind to everything we've brought you from basically the ground floor level, and you've accepted it as opposed to dismissing it because of your rank. Well, I think uh, a lot of the experience is, well, okay, the command staff would be receptive, but anyway, they're going to continue on with what they originally planned. And I think that that was some of the anticipation was you would take in all this, write it down, make notes, and kind of think about it and see how it would fit into the plan, not necessarily make that a part of the plan. Yeah. So I'd say the same with Joe is kudos for you for taking everything into account and actually putting it into play and making it work. Well, that's what a good coach does. I mean, you look at it, even relating to sports, a good coach puts – their best players at positions and and for to succeed you know and, and a lot of people they and a lot of commanders and and different levels i've been on this department as long as i have that it is kind of rare let me ask you why do you think you were selected for this position when there's a handful of chiefs <laughs> yeah that's a good question i can't you know i think uh at the time it was interesting um you know, I was, again, I was the bureau chief over tactical and special ops and wellness doesn't really fit into that, you know, that theme. Um, at the time, I was I was actually going through uh, something on my on my own that made me probably the uh, least uh, qualified for it, I would think, just because I was kind of struggling with some stuff um, also. But uh, I think ultimately uh, Garcia tasked me with this because, um, you know, he, he uh I think he knew how how much uh, this this subject meant to me because when we would sit in these these hearings, um, you know, I, I don't know, I just uh, you know, we I guess uh, you know you hear the struggles that people are, are carrying, and I, I just felt like it was part of something bigger, something that we were missing. Like I feel like our cops they know better than to be 
Uh, I'm not making excuses for everyone. I, I get we there's consequences for our actions. I get that, but but cops know that you know they don't come to this profession and want to go drive drunk. You know they don't come to this profession and want to be in dysfunctional and anger-filled relationships. They don't want that. Um, I felt like these things were a product of, of you know, they were a, a byproduct of something else. And I think Garcia could tell that, uh, you know, in, in some of my recommendations, maybe in some of my comments. Um, but uh, I'll tell you, man, I, I'm so glad he did because this, this subject has, um, man, it's just really grabbed me. It, it, there's a, uh, a drive and a motivation for this and a drive and a motivation to get this thing uh, to a place where, where we can truly start to, to, to help. And not only Dallas PD, but, but, you know, I think we have a responsibility when we have something that that's good and that's working. We have a responsibility as, as a lead agency in this country to, to share that, that with other departments. And, and, uh, we're going to, we're going to push this one, man. We're going to push it hard and try to bring some help to other. We've had conversations before you and I, and I've told both these guys also, but I kind of want to get it on the record here that I don't feel it would have been as successful if we didn't have the perfect storm that we have, you know, coming with chief Garcia coming in like a, a wrecking ball and really just bringing life back into this agency that was a little bit static for a while there, um, putting you on this assignment and then the people that you selected from there, I don't know that it would have been successful. In fact, I'll say, I, I don't think it would be successful if the people weren't lined up the way they are. No, I, I completely agree. I, I've been in this with you almost since the beginning, since you when you reached out. And I can say that your passion for this is not – it hasn't waned at all. It's only grown. And you, you, you got a ball rolling, and now it's an uphill battle. It always will be in this profession with all the stigmas. But – you have not lost any steam. You've only gained steam, and you've actually pushed us. You pushed a unit, and now we're try- we're we're out there. We have agencies across the country reaching out because if you talk about putting out this message and softening a conversation on this topic and the importance of this topic, and it kind of is going to lead me into our next topic is a manuscript you wrote for the IACP. Uh, magazine. I want you to kind of explain what what IA, IACP is to the listener, because we have a lot of civilians that listen, and just kind of talk about that manuscript and what spurred you to do that. Yeah, so IACP is the International Association of Chiefs of Police, um, biggest police organization in the world, and they have a magazine called Police Chief Magazine, which is, is uh, subsequently the biggest uh, police magazine in the world. Uh, this magazine goes out to 165 countries worldwide it's it's uh, definitely the the top of uh, of of you know that type of uh, periodical um, um, I was asked uh, early this year from um, Jeff Spivey who's a retired police chief of Irving he now works for uh, the Texas Peer Network he he was um, and he chairs a wellness committee for IACP so he was asked to uh, he was going to be the guest editor and, and was asked to find agencies that are that are doing things uh, for wellness and have them submit an article about their program. And so he asked me to 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 uh, if I would be willing to do it. And so he actually asked Chief Garcia and, Chief, and then forwarded on to me. And, and so I said, yeah. So um, and we just started writing up what it is we were doing um, and what our what our program was. And I, and I sent it to him and he 
uh, I guess, you know, he, he's, they sent it back and they said, well, can you talk a little bit more about kind of a how, a how to guide? Like, how did y'all build your program? And, and they wanted, uh, you know, just to know more about our program. So turned out to be, you know, pretty lengthy, uh, you know, word document, but I, I covered everything. I covered, you know, why we built this program, what we saw in our early conversations, how checkpoints works, talked about the different, you know, that comprehensive approach around our full-time staff. And, and, um, I submitted it. And so about a month, you know, or about a month or two later, I got a, 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 an email from IACP from police chief magazine, just saying, congratulations, you're, you know, we've, we've decided to publish your program in the May edition, the mental health edition of our, of our magazine. And then they, they said, we want to, you know, talk with you to kind of edit this and, and kind of get a little bit more information. And so, uh, we, we volleyed it a little bit and I added, you know, just more pieces of our, of our program, including some of the data sets that we were starting to be able to capture from our checkpoints and, um, some of the updates on our alcohol, uh, rehabilitation program and submitted it and, yeah, next thing you know, they said that we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna publish you guys, and I had to sign over some uh, agreements that that the you know that the uh, there was nothing plagiarized that I you know that I was the original author, and that that no that we wouldn't share it with anyone else, uh, you know, prior to them publishing it, that, that they'd be the first people to publish it, and, and so um, you know, again, it, it was just like wow, that was a pretty I thought it was a pretty pretty a pretty good acknowledgement that our, our program was uh, was that you know we might have something here. Well, it definitely helps spread the message that we're trying to promote, not not just within our own department, but other agencies out there that they need to hear this for their own, you know, men and women. And we got a lot of emails in response to that article oh, from agencies across the world. Coast to coast. Yeah. Every, you know, we're, we're getting, and even, even outside of the country, we're getting uh, contacts from other uh, law enforcement entities that want to, they want to know, mo- most of the people that reach out, they know they know why we're doing it. They know they see a need. They they see they see and they're themselves struggling. They know they want to know how to do it. How a department our size is putting something like this together? Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, the discussion about wellness is is just been had uh, for a while now, and and I think that you know everyone recognizes that there is value in something called wellness. And uh, but I think uh, what everyone is struggling with is is you know what like where to start. You know, how do you build one? And and that's really, you know, the question that, that you know, as this thing kind of continues to, to be out there and, and our program starts to evolve, that's really what we want to help agencies do. We, we want to, to kind of give them a blueprint of what we did to say, well, here's what worked for us, but here are some of the things that, that to consider uh, when you're building a program. Because every program has to be unique to your city. There's not a, this isn't a cookie cutter thing. It's not a one size fits all. But really that is the, the million dollar question is, uh, there's two of them. The first one is probably, how do I start? And then the, you know, the real problem, the real million dollar question is how does it actually integrate? How does it actually get to the, the hands of the frontline men and women and give them something tangible that they can actually use that will actually help them. And, and, you know, that's what, uh, what I think we've, we've managed to, to, to capture here. I think that goes back to the original uh, philosophy and uh, mission is get the right messengers and people pushing this and that, that will, you know, if you, I said it earlier in Gordon's episode, if you build it, they will come, you know, and, and that, I, that's what's happened. So idea to implementation is the, is the name of the article and it's right in the center of the IACP uh, chiefs magazine. Uh, it's, it's 
like five page article and it's it's very prominent in that magazine i kind of want to break down i want to almost do like a somewhat of a book review on that uh on that article and there's a five-pronged approach we we uh we we take in the wellness unit full-time staff one lieutenant uh, a sergeant and four troops i'm one of those troops we we do surveys uh to quarterly surveys to gauge uh or take the and again take keep take taking the temperature of the department to see what they want and need and we can see if we can try to accommodate and tailor what we're doing to those wants and needs and the backbone we've talked about it before we keep mentioning the checkpoint model i don't think we can mention it enough i mean danny and kent you both uh danny uh was on the ground floor of the checkpoint model kent you are now a checkpointer danny why do you why do you believe in the checkpoint process um i well for one i think it's something organic and normal i think it's something we normally do in our relationships or we should be doing in our relationships whether we're in police profession or not um and then partly i think from my experience too and just a lot of things i've been through in policing and i noticed um in uh, some of the critical incidents i've had there's been certain people who have reached out and it's made me know that obviously two things one is that um, they're acknowledging what i went through and then the second one is uh even if they don't fully know how to be capable of they want to be there to help in any way they can Um, so as far as implementing the checkpoint system on the department the way i saw it was um i back in the day had mentors the people of stature on this department that i looked up to and i thought were great cops and it was important for me to be recognized by them especially if i was going through something um and i thought that we could do the same for other officers here if they weren't getting that by chance they should be that's and that's the thing is in your own cultures and your work groups whether you're in patrol or in the investigative unit or some kind of specialty operations canine or SWAT you should have your core group of guys that take care of each other and do these things but I also say sometimes uh, being in those groups sometimes there's a little less acknowledgement because oh well this is this is the job we do this is normal anyway back to work and so someone outside of those work groups contacting them letting them know hey is there anything else I can do for you Um, I recognize what you're going through I know someone else who's been through something similar you know it's just opening their minds that there are options out there to talk or discuss about things and just have other people who can relate to them in such a way to know that these thoughts don't have to remain just with them you know, they, they can be shared. Yeah, in the checkpoint model, it basically, because we, we pick several people from different units that are very respected and in some high, a lot of high-profile units. We have we have patrol all the way up to uh, mounted to homicide to SWAT. Uh, command staff, they do checkpoints because, you know, it, you never know which some two-year officer gets a call from Deputy Chief Schultz just to check on them that means a lot to somebody they're going to remember that and there's a lot of people that respect you danny and swat the swat unit from afar they're on the outside looking in 
they don't have the connectivity that you have within that group. And a lot of people ultimately want to get to the unit you're in or can't, well, they want to get up to narcotics and to have somebody, a leader and somebody that's respected from one of these units reaching out, that can mean a lot to, to, to some officers that are, that are struggling. So I remember you basically cornered me on the second floor. I'm good at that. This was different. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> there was either a, a promotional ceremony or retirement that we were both at, and you came up and asked me if I wanted to, to be part of this. And initially I kind of didn't because the traditional model of peer support, I didn't really agree with. I didn't, I didn't like it. It seemed, it was ironic. You said it was uh, bake sales and Santa cops for volunteers. And, and the only thing I could think of for peer support was, you know, like the bake sale thing, like, Oh, hey, we're going to get together and have a little party. And, I don't want to dismiss what they were doing because I think they were in the the right headspace, but I just don't agree with the way it was being done. And I don't feel like it was effective. So I didn't want to be part of something that was not effective. You didn't want a cookie cutter program. He didn't want to be in the thing that he knows all cops aren't buying into. Yeah. It's just, I, I don't like to hitch my wagon to things that I don't think are going to be successful. Right. There's no reason to, to just say you're doing something for the sake of saying you're doing it. So I was very hesitant initially. Um, but after we talked about it for a couple of minutes and you said, basically all we're doing is calling officers and, and talking to them about what they've been through. And I was like, I already do that. You know, it's just, I do it to people that I know, but now there's a pipeline of, Hey, these people need to be talked to also, whether you know them or not. Um, and I kind of just thought about it and I was like, well, you know, departmentally, historically, at least we haven't done a really good job of taking care of other officers. You know, we, we, we piss on each other pretty good around here. Um, and even like, you can't say the department because the department is made up of people. So if the department's not doing something, then it's the people that aren't doing it. Right. So we can't count on the department as an an entity to, to call individuals. That's gotta be people. So I said, if, if we're going to do it, why not? Why don't I do it? You know, why don't I put myself in the position where I would want somebody to contact me and somebody to be able to talk to me and, and just be a voice on the other end of the line and, I don't know that I carry any more influence than anybody else in this department. I really don't see myself in, in that light, but I do see myself as somebody who has been through enough stuff professionally to talk to you about that. The thing about that officer who has maybe, maybe a year on the street, very rookie and uh, maybe their Sergeant just doesn't really care for him too much. And they maybe have two or three friends on that watch that they work with, and that's about it. And they're really not that established on the department. Who's going to check up on them? You know, do they have all those friends that are in other work groups that are police officers who can relate to them? Probably not. You know, they they're new on the department, and whereas some people like us over the course of our career have made a lot of relationships on this department, and people know who we are there there's going to be some of that checking in and when we go through something first one comes to mind scott jay scott jay being in the shooting a couple weeks ago um, i would hope and i think a lot of guys made contact with him checked up on him checked on his family made sure that the, they got whatever kind of help they needed but what about that 24 year old kid who has one or two classmates that are on his watch and that's it I want to speak, like you mentioned a 24-year-old kid, and Chief, you've told a story before about 26-year-old Reuben at Southwest. And you, you, I know you've already talked about it, but I, I think you cannot hear this enough. Can you talk about your exposure to a traumatic incident and also your exposure to what we now know as being a checkpoint? 
So when I when I was assigned to Southwest, it was my first assignment. I promoted to senior corporal, and I was transferred up to North Central. And so I was I was at North Central on third watch as a brand new senior corporal. Um, you know, I had had five six years on the department at that time. And uh, you know, the the call that I had received that that night was a was a critical missing call involving a uh, a missing uh, little girl. And so you know, I'd responded to that call, and uh, you know, I remember it just being an apartment complex. It was it, you know, I was using the spotlight to try to find the the uh, apartment that um, corresponded with the with, on the call sheet and so anyway I was approached by a large group of people that were running towards me and, and uh, you know I, I talked about the story once and for and I know it, it's kind of sometimes a difficult story to to, to re- relay but um, this uh, this family is comes towards me and, and a, a father hands me his little his little girl that he had found floating in a swimming pool in an apartment complex swimming pool and so uh, you know this was my uh, you know I was trying to do CPR on the little girl, trying to get the family members, the, the number they were growing. There was, you know, it started off with, you know, there was probably 15, 20 and everyone was praying and, 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 you know, crying. And, and I was trying to recall as best I could how you do uh, CPR on a little girl and, you know, do, going through the steps and uh, everything from, you know, I knew an ambulance was on the way. I could hear it coming. I had a cover officer, uh, uh, Rios that had, uh, was on his way. And, um, you know, just just trying to do all I could to, to save this little girl's life and, and uh, you know, hoping the entire time that she was going to just, uh, you know, like in the movies, just wake up and, and, and spit up a bunch of water. And all of a sudden, you know, everybody's going to be celebrating. And, and, of course, that didn't happen. So uh, the ambulance gets there and, and then they start working on her. And, and the scene just kind of flashes in my mind a few different scenes of the, the hospital scene where the medical staff are all working on her. And um, and then a scene where they notify the family that their their, their daughter had uh, had not survived. So it, it was really the days that followed that event that that uh, you know just didn't make a lot of sense to me. This was a critical missing call, although titled critical missing because of the age, isn't really a a um, you know a, a, it's not the call that you would expect. Uh, uh, you know to have the after effects of something like that, that too, it, it, it was, it was, it was uh, uh, you know, I had the after effects being that I wasn't really sleeping and, and I couldn't really, you know, lost appetite, couldn't really eat. And, and um, you know, just lingered on for, for several days, you know, it was, it was, this happened on my Monday. And so, you know, I had five days to go to get to my, my days off and um, just kept trying to shake it. Just really, you know, this feeling and just kind of feeling sad, just felt sad for this family. I couldn't imagine um, you know, felt sad for the family. Um, you know, felt, you felt down that, that I, you know, couldn't save her life. That was really the thing that, that, you know, you just, you almost feel like you get this opportunity to do something and, and, uh, and, you know, when it doesn't go the way you want to, you just, you know, you just, you know, it just kind of stuns you a little bit. And, um, but I couldn't really shake it either. And it carried on for several days for, for at least three days. And it wasn't until the, uh, the fourth day that, that, um, my sergeant after detail stopped me and, and just said, uh, you know, Hey Ruben, are you okay? And I said, I said, yeah, Sergeant, I'm okay. And so he's like, okay. And so, you know, I was really able to dismiss him, you know, r- really quickly and got my, 
uh, keys to my squad car and then went out out in the field on, to patrol. And it wasn't until that night I was I was pulled over somewhere. I was I was writing a, a report, and I got a message from uh, Lee Bollinger was the police officer that sent me a message to my computer and you know asked me what my location was. And if you know Lee or if any of you guys uh, you know heard, Lee was a you know he was he was definitely the you know kind of the crusty old. Uh, police officer he's had a lot of uh, you know very negative had a lot of opinions and um and you know at the time i you know i didn't really want to uh he was probably the last person i wanted to talk to at the time just you know i didn't want to hear uh anything negative and um so lee pulls up window you know to window on my squad car and very directly says um he says uh reuben how are you and i says to him you know i'm fine lee and he, he goes, you know, he gets right into it. Says, you know, Reuben, that that call you went to the other day, those can be tough. And I said, yeah, yeah, I wish I could have saved that little girl's life. Uh, and he says, you know, Reuben, twenty years ago, I was uh, when I was a patrol officer in uh, Central Patrol. He says I went to a car wreck where a, a, a little boy, little nine-year-old boy, had had uh, was in the bed of a pickup truck, and the pickup truck had rolled over on top of him and he says that little boy was alive when I got to the scene he says and I spoke to him he says um eventually they you know lifted the truck up and they they you know rushed this little boy to the hospital and he says Reuben that little boy died he says and I have spent the last 20 years of my career angry he said I've been mad at my sergeant I've been mad at the police chief been mad at the mayor because I've been mad at this city he says, and I just don't want to see the same thing happen to you. And he says, why don't you go talk to somebody? You know, he specifically says, you go to church. Go, go talk to somebody at your church. And I know that I just, I said, okay. And and that night I drove from that, uh, from meeting with Lee, I drove straight to a uh, Catholic church that was down the way. And I knocked on the door. I mean, it was late, you know, I was on the evening shift and it, and I knocked on that door until someone answered and a priest answered that night. And I talked to him and I said, you know, I can't, can't, uh, really sleep. Haven't been eaten. Said, you know, told him stories. This little girl, you know, this little girl drowned. And, uh, you know, uh, he says, did you, um, he says, Reuben, did you, did you know this little girl? And I said, no, I never knew her. And he said, did you know the family? I said, nope, never met him before. And he, you know, he says to me that, you know, he says, what you're describing is grief. And he says, he says, you're, um, you're not eating, you're not sleeping. He goes, and you, and you, you, uh, you're grieving for this family. He says, what you're doing is you're asking God to give you some of this family's pain so that they don't have to carry it all themselves. And, um, he says to me, he says, uh, that is, protecting and serving at the highest level he's like um that is going beyond the call of duty and um you know i, I remember listening to him and you know i didn't know whether you know i you know believed that or not but what i did know was that it gave me a lens and perspective about a horrible event um that I, I never would have been able to come up with on my own. I never would have been able to come up with that perspective. I didn't have a single friend at 25 years old or 26 years old that could have come up with that. Um, but he did. 
and and it gave me an opportunity to look at something horrible and and kind of see some nobility in it that I I tried to do something for someone else, and it and you know that lens and perspective um, helped me. You know, I'm not going to go as far as saying that it saved my life or anything like that. Uh, you know, or the trajectory of my you know life, but at that particular moment, it's exactly what I needed. It was a it was a professional. Um, you know, perspective and lens. It, it allowed me to, to understand how difficult this job we do is, and how normal it is to feel the way that I was feeling, uh, having having to, you know seen that kind of sadness. And um, and so I um, I believe that what Lee Bollinger did, you know, almost 22 years ago, uh, was he he reached on uh, out to me. Um, I wasn't in a crisis at the time. But I was definitely heading towards one. I was just trying to get to my days off. On my days off, I could have put some distance on this thing. Could have gone out drinking with some, you know, my buddies and and packed this thing down somewhere deep and hope that it never come up again. Uh, but that that what Lee did um, was, you know, shared a personal uh, anecdote with me about something he had been through. Uh, he gave me some guidance and told me what to do. He didn't, he, he said, go talk to somebody like, you know, that, that was his guidance. And, and I did. And so this model checkpoints that we built is, is mirrored off of what Lee Bollinger did, you know, almost 22 uh, years ago. And, and so, uh, I know this model works and, uh, it, uh, you know, I, I challenge anyone to, to question us on it. This, 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 uh, yeah, this is this is a, a this is a solution that um, that we haven't had before that can help, and it's simple and it's clean and, and it works. Yeah, Chief, I I, I I know you don't like talking about that story because the other day I've I've had the honor of watching you present to groups uh, for the Chiefs Conference as well as the uh, the Women of Policing Conference. Uh, you get up and you tell the story, and I can see a physical reaction when you're up there at that podium and you're telling the story. And, but I'm watching the crowds who react to what you're saying. And you show, you have a, a good size presentation. You show slides, you show stats. Anybody, anybody can find stats on police suicides. Anybody can find stats on anxiety in the first responder community and depression and symptoms and, and, and alcohol related arrest. What is difficult to find is finding a, assistant chief of police in one of the top 10 departments in the country being vulnerable and sharing a true story of a traumatic event that weighed on them at the time and then now 20 plus years later you are trying to create a solution based on your true life events and you're being vulnerable sharing that story and I was looking around the room people walk out of that conference they're not remembering a stat that you showed I promise you they're remembering the story of Delvine and how it affected you and now you as one of the leaders of the Dallas Police Department you're coming up with solutions to help generations of officers combat the same thing that you combated at 26 years old yeah well I you know I appreciate that I know that the the story isn't the easiest for me to uh, to tell and and I know a lot of our officers have similar stories and and one of the you know about things that they've been through and experienced and one of the things that that really um i find fascinating about our our checkpoint model is that when you take people like we are 
the, like the people we have assigned to checkpoints. And let's be very clear: our checkpoint officers are these are not your run-of-the-mill police officers. They're, these are these are people who have worked incredibly hard to get to the point where they are, and they have character and and respect. And um, you know, officer, they're, they're the officers other officers want to you know you know want to talk to. Um, when you get people like that who are willing to share their story because uh, most of our checkpoint officers are very open about uh, the, the value in counseling and they're very open about the things that they're carrying, the scars that they're carrying, the things that they have seen and things they wish they hadn't seen. They're being vulnerable in, in, in that position with all the character and all the accolades that they have, they're being vulnerable and, and in, in an effort to help younger officers or other officers not go through some of the same pitfalls they are. That's powerful. When you can capture that, harness that, and, and, and you have those, again, those officers that are willing to do that, that vulnerability, there's so much strength in it um, that it, uh, it, it's, it, that is the reason that, you know, again, that we're, we're seeing some of the officers come forward and uh, some of the numbers on, on officers that are coming forward and responding to, to the checkpoint. Yeah, I keep the, uh, the statistics. We de-identify all the statistics for the, uh, the checkpoints and the wellness unit, and I kind of have a statistical breakdown, what part of the d- division, what watch they're working, what, what type of call that we're calling on. We have homicide, suicide, uh, fatality accident, and we have other category and also uh, anything dealing with a child offense. Um, and so I keep those stats just for a number so I could say that for the year that 50-something percent were because of officers' exposure to a homicide or a violent scene. And, you know, that's just used for statistical purposes. But I could say that over – since we've been doing this, gosh, it's been over almost 2,000 officers we have reached out. Some people we've called multiple times because they work, work a bad part of town and they just respond to a lot of, of violent uh, scenes uh, that – we're right now hovering anywhere from nine to eleven percent of officers that we've reached out to have actually asked for uh, a counseling service or asked for some help and sometimes it's not immediate you might get off the phone with them and then a couple of days later you might get a text or a phone call back saying hey um i'm you, we talked the other day i think i'm ready now and that's what we want to at least again plant that seed and it doesn't work for it doesn't work for everybody, and not everybody wants it at that time. But we want to show that we care, and we're available if and when you're ready. Have you talked to Lee? I reached out to him. Yeah, I let him know uh, the first time we talked about this uh, briefly in that podcast. I reached out to him, let him know that I was going to share this story, and and um, and uh you know it was interesting you know well i wanted to make sure that he recalled it that, that way too as like hey this and you know i know this happened a long time ago but there was a time when I, we were at north central and you um you you uh sent me this message and he remembered it and um man he says to me uh reuben and i said well i want to make sure you don't mind i share that story in your name and he says reuben he goes um i, I j- i'm just glad to know that something i did um might be helping people and you know i um Man, I think when you talk to some of these uh, retirees that, that are listeners, and, and I think when they look back on their careers, you know, you see them on, on your podcast a lot. I mean, they come in back sharing stories that are 
really in the same wheelhouse. They're emotional stories that had an emotional, you know, a secondary trauma piece that they've carried and, and, and that they've, you know, had scars from for a long time. And so, um, I think there's, there's so much value in, in kind of reaching out to our, our retirees and getting, you know, some, some of their insight and their perspective and, and guidance on, on how we make this program even better. I think they're a wealth of, of, of experience and, and knowledge that, that we can, we could use. Yeah. That's why I, I reach out to a lot of those guys because I know that what they've experienced is valuable to generations of officers because the next generation beyond us, they're going to experience the same thing they experience. The generations now and upcoming, they actually have things in place uh, that can help them. Unlike the veterans like Lee Bollinger or Steve Claggett or, you know, some of these veterans that have hired on in the sixties and seventies and eighties and, you know, even nineties, they didn't have this available. So people hearing those stories of how they either coped or did not cope or did not did not deal with it properly, I think there's value in hearing other people's failures and successes from those failures. So that's why I want to continue this message and, and you know the uh, you can't you can't replace ex- true experiences. You know, you can go sit through classes all day, but until like it, everybody here has gone through a traumatic incident that most people that don't do this profession or do the first responder profession or military, they'll never go their whole life without experiencing something. Some of the things we've seen multiple times. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, you know, we started pulling the stats now just to try to understand what we should respond to. And one of the things that we learned was the ratio in which our, our officers respond to loss of life calls. And it's, I mean, it's stunning. It's stunning. You know, and I don't know that it, I don't even know how different it is in smaller departments because if there's fewer departments and, you know, you still have the officers, your the rate of exposure to loss of life is consistent. And, and you know, our Dallas police officers, uh, you know, I know that uh, when, when I looked at those three categories, the suicides, homicides, and fatality car crashes, uh, the, the ratio is high. And then when you add in there like unexplained deaths or natural deaths or or, you know, any, you can, you can build it, how you can look at it, how a number of different, you know, lenses, but you add child abuse or these other calls that we all, we know are all harmful. Uh, the rate of exposure to these calls is, is really, um, it's, it's chart blowing. And, um, you know, our hope is that as we continue to build this program out, we're going to build almost a profile of our police officers, something that's that looks different from, you know, your normal profile of a police officer from an administrative standpoint, or from a department standpoint is like it, it says, you know, you have this many years of service and this many commendations and this many complaints. And and then you look at like a disposition of the complaint and, and as if somehow that's a real true lens of what a what it is to be a police officer. When the reality is I, I'd rather see a profile that talked about how many critical incidents they were assigned to, how many loss of life calls did they go to. Uh, how many suicides have they been to, um, fatality car crashes, those things will tell you, give you a, a, a truer depiction of what that police officer is carrying. And my hope is that if that's available to officers, they'll, they'll look at that and maybe, you know, collectively through their, uh, with their families, look at that and, and recognize that, you know what, this is a lot uh, from, you know, for a five-year officer to have been to. And maybe, you know, us getting a counselor and, and uh, you know, uh, that there'd be some value and it'll, it'll help me, you know, be the person that I set out to be when I took on this profession. 
Well, that goes into another part of the one of the prongs of the wellness unit uh, that you mentioned in the articles, the education piece. You cannot get enough education, whether it's from true testimonials from your peers or from outside resources like, you know, a Dr. T or, or, you know, somebody from site services speaking to you, you, it's getting out front of it and giving education. And if you go and uh, we go, we train a lot as police officers, we go out and we train with firearms. We go and we could, we could train on, uh, you know, defensive tactics, the be- what's the best way to handcuff somebody. But we also, we really don't train on how to protect our mind and to deal with the mind is connected to the body and it's your body's just one big machine. And if your brain is not working correctly, everything else is going to fall. So that's one of the pieces of the wellness unit is we go out and we teach the sergeant school, the new sergeant school. We have the field training officer school. We have the, we hit the rookies uh, while they're in the academy. And then we have other in-service, but you go out and we keep spreading the gospel, you know, in a way, is you going out and talking, us talking about on this podcast. I was talking about the wellness unit before it actually was put in place because I knew it was coming. And I wanted to keep planting that seed that this is going to happen. This is what we're going to do. But the education piece, you can never get enough of that. And you never know who's sitting in an audience that may get, you might strike a chord with them. They may a counselor or a doctor or the presenter may be talking about an individual and the person sitting there could be mentally checking off a box going, yes, that's me. Yep. That's me. That's me too. I've actually, we've actually had that on the listeners of this podcast. They've sought counseling because of something they've heard. And that's what the education piece comes in. Cause what we're talking about here, this is a form of education. It's a long form of conversation in hopes that it could resonate with somebody that maybe they would look at something to do a different lens, just like you did when Lee talked to you, then you talked to the priest. The formula of, of connecting with someone during, uh, you know, the timing of connecting with someone when they're in an emotional situation, whether they realize they are or not, you know, um, uh, and, and what you can implant, you know, in, in a message or, or training is, is priceless. Right. And that's one of the things that, that our program is trying to look into is that, you know, we have deemed all of these calls routine for you know really 140 years in, in this police department uh, when, in fact, they are not routine. They're anything but routine. The, 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 you know, we don't no services are ever initiated for a fatality car crash. No services are initiated for a homicide or for a suicide. But yet those are the calls that, you know, are affecting our police officers, not because of the call scene itself, but some of the other residual things that, that occur from it, just the images or the sounds and, and, and the smells and those kinds of things. So we, you know, we're, we're just kind of trying to bring to light this, this idea that if, if you, if we continue to call those routine calls, then how in the world is a police officer going to feel comfortable coming forward and saying it's affected me, right? Because it's supposed to be routine. So this is, you know, so what we do in checkpoints is get in front of it where we don't make them come forward and check and, and, and tell us they need help. We're going to go to them and, and see if they're okay. And along the way, we're going to give an opportunity to uh, create a mentorship. You know, we're going to give some, some resources, take all of the legwork out of it because our, our wellness unit is doing that. And um, at the very least, and this is probably one of our biggest successes, is that we are normalizing the discussion about the need for wellness and mental health and the cumulative effect of emotional trauma on our police department. And the reason I know we're doing that is because when we started our program last year, we were only operational for about a half a year. We did 800 checkpoints 
and and then this year we've been averaging 200 uh, checkpoints a month. You know, now of course we a little bit of a glitch with this cyber attack and all that we're trying to sort out, but um, but we're slated to do 2,400 checkpoints this year, 200 a month. That's 2,400 conversations that are encouraging, supporting. They're being given by people of influence, people who you know uh, potentially mentors, and they are they're either replacing a conversation that that wasn't going to happen about this or they are replacing an, a negative conversation that would have happened around this so that you know infusing of these types of conversations at that ratio 2400 a year is absolutely going to manifest and have some sort of positive uh, residual effect there's no doubt just like it did 22 years ago with lee nudging you in a direction to go knock on that church's door that's what this models that's what the philosophy is yeah and and we're gonna we're taking it a step further than just reaching out to the officers on we're we're also incorporating the families we're having we're having marriage uh workshops we're having couples workshops and we're having just education for family members too we're reaching out for resources to to hold these events and invite the spouses significant other partners the, the kids to get them connected so they better can understand what their first responder uh, uh, partner is is going through, and how maybe they can deal with it, because they're suffering a lot of times. They're suffering along with them. You've mentioned the divorce rate. I mean, it's it's about seventy percent uh, nationally for first responder divorce rate. There is the the anxiety, the anger, the depression. Those are all symptoms of of the grief and people in emotion. The people t- don't don't realize how emotional this job is and the ripple effect. And that goes well beyond the officers. There's there's plenty of officers that ruin their personal life because of what they're trying to deal with from their professional life. Yeah, and you know the piece that gets left out of a lot of the discussion is how how difficult it is to be married to a first responder. You know, I mean, how you know our our spouses watch TV and see things that um, that that are happening locally and and they don't know for a minute or two whether you're the one who has been at that scene and then um you know if you had been at that scene they don't really know how to to you know how to respond to it and we've never done anything to educate them on on how to respond to it or we we really haven't done anything for for families uh you know i think as and i shouldn't say we you know there probably has been some efforts in the past uh, just in my time here I, i don't recall any so the family is really the first they're the true first responders. Like they're the first, they're the first layer of support that we have. They're they're, they're the first layer of the of a first responders ecosystem yeah. is the family and then close friends and the partner could usually be a sounding board, almost like a in car counselor. But the family is a huge part of a first responders ecosystem. Yeah, and our, you know our program, you know, because I know it gets a little confusing. Uh, it, it could get confusing for the listener too. Is you know. It, our, our wellness unit, our full-time wellness unit, it has the reason why we believe that full, we need a full-time staff or, uh, as, as part of these programs is because there is that education piece where you're at the academy, where you're at the promotions. The details. Uh, yes, and you're talking to brand newly, newly promoted senior corporals, newly promoted sergeants, newly promoted lieutenants in their, you know, during their training. And um, you are reaching out to the family members and creating that support system and, and letting them know that everything that we are building in our support program uh, is available to you too it's available to the spouses it's available to their children uh the surveys the newsletters all of these things are all part of this this 
this robust, com- comprehensive approach that that I think it, you know for a city like Dallas is absolutely needed. This is a this is a this is a major city police department that comes with all the you know hardened ground and hardened culture and all the you know uh, bells and whistles to go with that hardened hardened culture. And so we felt when we built our program, we needed to have a, a you know a system that had all of the add-ons, all of the uh, additions. Um, and, and all the, the purpose of that is so that we don't, this department doesn't get a chance to forget that we're, we're doing everything we can to support them. If they, if they're not getting a checkpoint, uh, they will, you know, during a promotion, they'll, they'll, you know, or training class, they'll see us there at the Academy. They'll see us there. They'll get one of our newsletter updates. They'll get a survey in their box. Um, so that we raise ourselves off of the mat here, which almost having been non-existent previously to a certain level. And, and we know that we're not, you know, biting off more than we can chew. We're always going to be there. There's always going to be newsletters, surveys. You're always going to see us at, uh, you know, the details. Uh, these kinds of things have to continue to exist so that the, the officers see us, so that they don't forget about the importance of this. And then checkpoints, which is out here over on the side, that's just out there in front on the everyday, uh, you know, for the everyday officer that's, that's, that's responding to these calls. They're getting checked in on so that, you know, there's just another mechanism of, of show of, of what this, pro, that this program isn't going away. And we really haven't even talked about the investigative side, you know, just recognizing that they need a, you know, a, a layer of, of, of support for what they're doing every day, too. So, you know, the, the, the full time wellness unit is doing the investigative checkpoints along the way as well yeah we reach out to the uh to the investigative units we have uh quarterly meetings with each unit and we go over and we and sometimes it's people venting and people asking for things and we go back and we put our heads together and we see if we could do it for them that's why we are a we're basically we're an entity that absorbs we go out and we try to see if we can apply it to the uh to the unit to the department we keep harping on creating the right team putting together the team uh to carry this message for a, a department for city and you got tasked with putting together the team and i have to say that you know before it actually was officially put together you know i was helping out but then you kind of talked me into joining it officially because we were allotted for four troops a sergeant and a lieutenant and you could talk on the the first piece of that being put together, you know, was was the lieutenant part. Yeah, I generally try to stay in the place where I want to pick the supervisor, or in this case, the the unit commander, and then let the unit commander pick the people that that will report to them. I think there's value in that that chemistry and, and really just kind of the whole selection process. So for us, uh, identifying a unit commander became really our top priority. We knew that. The chief was going to give us these resources. Um, he had he had bumped us up in staffing, like you said, it, it was four and a sergeant, and he bumped it up to five, a sergeant and a lieutenant. So we knew we, we needed to get the unit commander right. And this was the probably the biggest pick we were going to make, and we had our core group together. Again, um, Major Hawks was part of that. Uh, chief Schultz, yourself, Danny, and I remember just going through the list of all the lieutenants, and there was about 80 of them on the list, and we went one by one just trying to figure out who was going to be uh, the person that would take over this this role. And um, we we narrowed the list down. There were some absolute uh, no's. There were some possibles. 
uh, but we were able to narrow it down to just a you know a hand few you know just a handful and um, when we looked at all those possibilities there were some probationary issues and with with others and, and maybe some tenure um, but Lieutenant Rivera was the one that just kept you know it was the name that kept coming up and and everyone was uh, eventually in our core group agreed that she would be the right person she had the right demeanor she had the right experience we thought that um, you know she was passionate about this type of work and so uh, we we made the selection and then it you know then we have to reach out to them and see if it's a role that 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 they want to take on because you know like we've said it's difficult starting new new units there's there's no template for it you're we're we're having to you know put things together through trial and error and, and map it out and anyway we reached out to her and she was interested in the role so uh, so then we had our unit commander yeah I was there and I remember going through that long list I was thinking I didn't know I didn't realize we had that many lieutenants on the department yeah and um, one thing that stood out with her is like you said everybody was kind of on the same thought processes but what I thought about her is empathetic compassionate and supportive and that is a, that is some of the models and descriptions you've used for this uh, this wellness unit since its uh, inception. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just something. You know, those are those are words that you don't hear in policing a lot. Um, you know, the empathy, compassion, support model, and and uh, you know, I've said this before. Policing uh, is a very um, emotional profession, arguably the most emotional profession there is. And it is absolutely a very human uh, profession. They're, these are human beings underneath these uniforms, regardless of the superhuman work that they do every day. Um, you know, those are uh, those are those are core fundamentals of this job. And, and until we really recognize that, create that awareness, and, and respect those those qualities, then I don't know that we're going to get the full potential or uh, sustainability of our police officers. So yeah, she definitely embraced those those um, those qualities, and, and so she was willing to carry that message for us. Yeah, and then she, and then the 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 further the unit and and start building the pieces uh, that it was put out, open up for the department for people to apply. Uh, Sergeant Figueroa uh, put his hat in the ring. He ended up being selected, and he is another uh, individual that is like uh, it's. He kind of has the uh, look of a checkpoint, a checkpointer. If he was not the sergeant in this unit, I believe he would be a checkpointer because of his experience and also his his passion for helping others and his he's he's respected on this department i think like i said i think that if he wasn't the sergeant over this unit he would he would be a checkpointer yeah i agree and you know uh credit to fig in a lot of ways he's a I mean, he's a well-respected sergeant and and he's a troop i mean he's out there he's he's got the uh you know the skins on the wall he's he's been out there and the troops respect that and you know i think again the unit commander you know she did a really good job of uh contrasting you know some of her strengths with who was going to be the supervisor over the unit and and i think you know between those two they really do cover a good 360 degree look at, at, at you know how we can connect with our officers and the messages and the experience that we have that each of them have uh to be able to to create the buy-in and and so yeah she was when she gave me her list of of candidates um you know she we went over her, her top few she had a lot of good things to say about about uh, you know some of her top five, uh, but it was Fig that she she thought you know this is the guy I need, and uh, so I said okay, and we went and we ran it by the chief, and chief was he was okay with it. He liked it. He liked it if we liked it, and we were on our way. Yeah, I'm glad he did. And then once I saw the top uh, put in place um, by you, uh, I said okay, I can 
I can I can get it I can get in on this I can, I'm, I'm gonna get on this train. I got on and then we uh, we picked uh, uh, David Massey and uh, Demarcus Black and Nicole Glass and uh, we just we just recently got uh, Sasha Kim. She's gonna be the new peer support coordinator and uh, Sasha is a rock star. She is uh, she has been in, involved in uh, the mental health field for a really long time. She is working on a career past Dallas PD and uh, she's passionate about it. And I'm really happy to have her on board. Yeah. We always hear a lot of good things about her um, and really all of the team. So yeah, we, they, they, make, they got it done. I mean, credit again, credit to the unit commander and, and, you know, her pick with the supervisor and everyone else for coming together and putting together a really well-rounded team that, that, uh, you know, after a year of operations, really getting it done at a, at a extremely high level. We've talked about, the IACP article and the prongs of of the wellness unit and from checkpoints to the education piece to Chief Garcia allocating, you know, putting together a full-time team to dedicate to this, this initiative. How can other agencies across the country, how can they put something like this together? What are some of the best transferable policies and procedures we do that other department can do at any size? You know, I think there's value in any agency that is really wanting to build something, wanting to, to, to implement a program, a wellness program, to first just take a look at you know, some of the, the behaviors that you're having within your department, not just the one incident that you just addressed, not just a, a recent DWI, but really look at a historical, uh, get a real good snapshot of what your department has experienced. And that should include you know, um, areas of misconduct uh, that should include deadly force confrontations, uh, shootings that your officers have been involved in, um, you know, near misses, threats and attacks against officers. I personally think it should include some of the politics and some of the climate that, that we've all endured in American policing over the last couple of years. But you should look at some of the politics within your particular city and see how it you know, how big of a narrative or a message of, of even things like defund and, and, and things like that, because those things do have an, an impact on your police officers. They, they're spirit killers. Um, I think you, uh, you know, when you take that cumulative look um, from everything from what your department has endured, the kind of things that have manifested, the politics, um, even media market to an extent, you know, when you live in a metropolitan area where you have a major media market they can sometimes be relentless about you know missteps or mistakes or or, or, or the things that a police officer has done wrong and, and run with it and again all of those things cumulatively can lend to kill the spirit or the morale of your pd and this is not in my opinion you, if you look at any city that is under consent decree in this country uh, there is almost immediately two things happen when a city goes under consent decree uh, your morale lowers and a lot of your officers leave uh, which which snowballs the the morale issue. So these things are important. They matter to the men and women who are out there carrying the line every single day and and trying to you know wade through some of the difficulties of, of policing. So so that's one thing that you need to be equipped with before you go you know starting to talk to your officers. Let them know that you recognize this. Let them know what the historical is. Remind them of some of the things that you've captured. When showing that you did that due diligence can go a long way to getting your uh, eventually your buy in. Well, I think one thing that I am doing now that you have put the team together and, and put me in a position where I can assess resources that are around, I'm, I'm, help, I'm reaching out to uh, marriage counselors or, or uh, I'm finding resources for officers' children that are, 
that's something I've never even considered. Like I've had some officers come in that, Hey, I have a team that's had, that's going through this. Can you, can you help find something? Yes, absolutely. I can. I had to find a form the other day for somebody to get a, for, for an officer to get a state, uh, a state license, I guess it's for a, a companion dog or therapy dog. I had to, I looked that up for them because that is my role now. And I think, that if a, a unit is put together and that's what their job is that they need to constantly network constantly dig and research what's out there because uh, there is several resources out there that can help everybody for each individual need because everybody has some they need something different and i've really I've, it's been kind of eye-opening to me of actually seeing that and seeing all the just various issues that are coming up yeah, I completely agree. Uh, just kind of doing an assessment of the resources that are available in your area. One of the things that, that you'll find is there are a lot of resources out there that would really want to help, but we've never really created an avenue for them to be able to help. And, and if they have inquired one day, maybe they sent an email or, or saw a police officer or a chief somewhere and flagged them down, it, it doesn't really get to, the, to you know any movement. So that's got to be the wellness unit's role or whoever's going to be in this position. Go look at what's available out there. Announce that you're looking for resources that are available. You'll be surprised how many people want to help and uh, give them that avenue. But not just so that we have, you know, a, a, a good contact list of resources, but also because we want we want to take the legwork out of our officers having to do that. That's one of the key pieces that we have to understand. We're, we're building, we're trying to create a new standard in American policing for wellness and, and one of the things that we're going to have to do is take the legwork out of it for our officers. They're too busy. Uh, they've got plenty of things going on. They've got their personal lives and family lives. They've got this, this you know, beast of a, of a role. They're trying to reduce crime with, with the trends and things we're seeing. They're trying to follow crime plans. They're trying to, to manage all the different schedules and, and, and just pieces of parts of being a police officer. Let's us take the legwork out of finding the resources so we can serve them up. Uh, whether we, you know, uh, whether it's a, a, you know, through an online newsletter or just a buffet of here are all the resources we found for you, that will go a long way with your police department as well. Uh, another, you know, transferable best practice is to 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 hold those focus groups discussions. Do those after you've found resources that are available. Do those after you've looked at historical data and found the things that are your officers and your department has been exposed to. Have those focus groups discussions and and just remember that. You know, really, that just the uh, it's almost like one of those age old adages. You you better genuinely care about the mental health and the wellness of your police department if you're going to go have these conversations, because no one can sniff that out better than uh, than cops. And so you go in there half cocked with, you know, some half hearted message of how you're going to do this thing. Uh, you're not going to get any traction. Cops, we, we just haven't given them enough in the past in this space to really get them to be receptive. So um you know, so have that information, that historical, but then ask them, you know, what are the things you're carrying? What are the things that we've missed on? Some of those conversations are going to get heated and, and, and they're going to get, you'll get some blame pointed at you and, and you're going to have to, you know, a lot, a lot of, probably in a lot of ways, you're going to have to eat crow on it and, and just accept that we haven't really, we haven't done what we were supposed to do in this space. So wade through those t difficult conversations. And that's when I think if you, if you, if you can withstand it and get through it, that's where you get to the goal. That's where you get to where you really start figuring out what it is they're carrying and, and understanding where we've missed and then ultimately figuring out something that will really benefit them or really serve them. But it's got to 100% uh, be genuine. 
Well, that goes back to the original mission of picking the right messengers and, 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 and you know, and carrying that torch for yeah. others to, you know, to follow. Yeah. And the, and the last thing I'd say is, is, um, you know, if you are going to get something off the ground here, uh, you, you're going to have to have buy-in from your troops. There, there's every, you know, you hear a lot of talk, especially, you know, I, I, I do from the command levels is that, well, you got to have the command staff and you got, you know, you got to have the, the command staff buy-in. And there's truth to that, but the command staff alone can't get this done. And, and, and you know, we're very fortunate to have had a chief in our department who recognizes the need for it, uh, who is willing to, to message this out, you know, everything from videos to you know, just discussions to emails about the importance of this. You absolutely need that in your police department. Whoever the, If you're going to get anything off the ground, you have to have the top of the organization buy into this. But most importantly, you're going to need buy-in from the true peers in this police department. That's what gets this. That's where the rubber meets the road on this. You've got to have buy-in from the peers, the people that other cops look up to, the people that other cops will listen to. Um, th- those are the people that are, the, you know, they're the real influential leaders within a PD. And, and in order for you to have success, you got to get their buy-in. Um, they have to take ownership in this program. It's got to be built and pushed forward uh, through them. You know, the organic piece that we talked about, having our buy-in, our, our, our you know, checkpoint officers that have, that have kind of built their own, you know, team of, of checkpoint officers, that's a big part of it. But you can take it further. You know, our, our logo, the, the Officer Wellness and Longevity uh, patch, it was written by, you know, or, or drawn up and drafted by one of our own sketch artists. Uh, our newsletter, you know, you're the architect of the newsletter. You know, there's got to be a, an organic piece where it's cops taking care of cops in order for this thing to, to really get where it needs to go. And then um, the last transferable best practice is you got to have a driver. I mean, plain and simple. You, you. If you have the chief buy-in, you're on your way. If you can, if you, if you're, if you've done your research and your mind's right, and and you genuinely care about this, you can develop those informal leaders and get that buy-in from the ground level, the people that are going to carry this for you. But you got to have a driver after that. You got to have somebody that's going to pave the path to let everybody else do the pieces that they, uh, that that you said you were going to do. Uh, let them do the pieces that they said they do. If you do right, kind of like Danny mentioned earlier today, you know, you can't just take a bunch of notes and then not get done. So you need a driver that's going to pave the path to let everyone else do and follow through and do the things that, that they want to do to, to help your department. If you have those things in place, yeah, you can absolutely move this thing forward. And, and the last thing I'll say about that is that because there's a lot of intimidation, I think, um, about, you know, the mountain, uh, you know, uh, of of taking on this type of role and 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 the truth is we haven't spent uh, uh we haven't spent anything in one year on our we we've spent the resources we had to allocate the full-time resources and yes there's a cost associated with those salaries but as far as dollar amounts and, and things that we've had to have in order to be able to provide something to our to our department to our troops we haven't we haven't collected any we hadn't collected anything up until this recent uh donation that i'm, I'm sure we'll talk about here shortly but but yeah, we the first you know year almost in operations, we did this with just with just resources uh, or with just officers, no no money or funds tied to it. Yeah, it is definitely just homegrown, organic. It, it's organic in nature and how it's how it's evolved. Uh, but you do have to have a driver like you know like like yourself. You really have stayed on us. You've held you you put the wellness unit in place, but you've also stayed on us to make sure we're continuing that mission unlike other other units that you go to like when danny went to swat or kent went to swat or, or narcotics 
those units are have been long established. They're just another they're just another component to that machine. They can make it run very smoothly or add to it, but it, what they entered already existed. This unit's been unique. Unlike anything I've seen, I've been a part of, is that it literally had to be built from the foundation uh, and built up. And we're still building it. We're not even a year in. We have to lay the foundation and solidify it and continue to lay on brick after brick and listen to our officers and have somebody like, you know, like you that supports us and, and holds us accountable to keep our foot on the gas. And, you know, I, I've been... I've been with you on this project for from almost the beginning, and even before that, uh, when you were in uh, over investigations, I kind of worked with you some stuff dealing with case filing. I know that when you were handed this task, you were not a hundred percent in your in mind, body, and soul. You were struggling, and you took this on, and you know I I know that you were hurting whenever you took on this road. You needed something like this. We're all human. We all struggle, whether it's personal and professional. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And, and yeah, you know, I, w- I was going through a divorce at the time. And, uh, man, it was just uh, – it was really on the heels of, of the, the protests and all of that was kind of, you know, all around that same time frame. And, and uh, there was uh, – I, I was struggling myself, to be honest with you. And I thought it was ironic that I got tasked with it. But, but again, just like anything – you know, looking back, it's just worked out. Uh, it, it's it's caused me to to see things from a lens that I, I hadn't seen previously. I, I did see what divorce looks like, and 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 I will tell you that um, you know, for anybody who's been through one, you know that that is a crisis, uh, especially when you have kids. And there's a piece to that that rocks you to your core, regardless of whether the the marriage is is you know it's you know a better idea to 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 end the marriage, there's still a network of support that is severed there. And that thing hurts. And when there's kids involved, it's, you know, tenfold. And so, um, you know, again, recognizing that I, I, I want to do all that we can to, to help strengthen our families. Uh, that's a, that, that's a, that's such an important piece. We lo- we look at the 70% divorce rate, like it's just the norm. Uh, that's 70% of us are going through crisis. And I, I and, and I don't even know how many, uh, of that remaining 30% are really in the, in the place where they want to be as well. So uh, it caused me to see that lens. And, and for that, you know, if I can do something to, to you know, through this program to help, then then it's it's worth its weight in gold. Um, in gold. But, but there's other pieces that, you know, I realize how incredibly similar we all are. You know, whether you have stars on your collars or you just got a brand new badge out of the academy, uh, we're, we're, 100 percent similar man we're 100 percent human we are emotional people we've got things going on in our personal lives uh that we we carry into this profession um you know our family's health is is, is you know the our, our children when they're not doing good in school our marriages are you know there's a number of different things that happen in our personal lives that first of all make us con- completely connected because we're all carrying them but they're impactful and these ideas that somehow or another, when you put on this uniform, that you are immune from the real human part of life is, is just a 100% lie. I mean, uh, resilience, you know, we talk about these things like they're, you know, like, oh, we've got to train officers in resilience. Like it's some sort of download, like we're a computer and, you know, we go to an eight hour block and somehow or another we're resilient. When the reality is resilience is, it is more of a moving, you know, it's on a moving scale, man. Sometimes we're resilient. And then sometimes we're not. 
and and so we're never going to be able to to pinpoint perfectly when someone is carrying some struggles in their personal life uh but we we sure as hell can 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 you know level create a program that is consistently checking on people consistently available to them and do everything that we can to put our best foot forward to make people trust in it make people believe in it to know that it's there for them and then you know hopefully we can start improving the 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 quality of life to to our men and women i'll tell you you know policing is incredibly noble profession right i mean i i love that police officers are willing to toe the line on this thing every single day especially over what has happened you know over the past few years in policing but i'll tell you what else is incredibly noble is is being a a mom being a dad uh especially the mom and dad you set out to be being a husband and wife you know being the person that you wanted to be when you came into this profession uh that's incredibly noble as well and we gotta make sure that we don't ever lose sight of that in in this uh this profession again absolutely uh so You've got a, we have like a year in to this, uh, not even a year of this, of this unit being formed. You put together a team to carry this mission and we're still growing. We're learning. We're listening. You've written a manuscript that's been sent out to all the, the 165 countries. That's, it's got a lot of eyes and, and it's, and it's drumming a lot of buzz and people are reaching out. You've written and pushed a bill to the Texas legislation we hadn't even touched on that's going to be for all officers in the state of Texas. And it's heading towards the governor's desk to be signed. The Dak Prescott Faith Fight Finish Foundation reached out to us and they just gave us a donation of 150000 just for Dallas PD employees civilian and sworn to help our mental health i have to give dak uh, a huge thank you for the faith fight finish they have four pillars and two of the pillars he th- this donation 100 percent is on target with the mental health and suicide prevention and also bridging the gap between law enforcement and the communities they serve that's two of the four pillars of the uh the Dak Prescott Foundation. What do you, what do these achievements mean to you? Well, I mean, just to continue on the the Dak Prescott, uh, the Faith Fight Finish Foundation. First of all, you know, I can't say enough about their foundation and and him as well. Um, you know, whether you, regardless of what your view is on the Cowboys or football, um, that is a good human being. He is one of the best human beings that I've, I've met. And, and I mean that because this guy, uh, the pillars that you talked about, he doesn't just, it's not just a slogan for him. He is at those events all the time. And this is a guy, I don't know what he, what his net worth or income is, but the guy is probably a hundred million dollar a year guy. He's doing better than us. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) A hundred million dollar a year guy. And he spends his time uh, and because and we've been to those events and we see them and they're real. He's, he's going to these Christmas events for kids and giving out Christmas gifts. He's going to events and uh, just handing out school stuff or, or you know, million dollars that he handed out to, to cancer for, for children. 
um, and hosting events. He's just constantly spending his time serving the community. And I've never met anybody like that who's got that platform that could be doing other things but chooses to do this. So, yeah. Well, I'll say that I'll say one thing about Dak is he, this is somebody that's he's his mission has been spurred by his own personal personal trauma from losing his brother through mental health. Uh, he, he lost a mental health battle. Dak is open about his his uh, his own uh, anxiety and depression issues. He believes in the mission and he understands he's human. I don't care if you put on a badge. I don't care if you put on a helmet with a star on it. We're all human at core and we all have the same problems and we all we all have the same fight. Yeah, 100%, man. And, he, you know, he is the uh, epitome of, of just that strength and vulnerability. You know, standing, being the quarterback of, uh, you know, America's football team and getting out there and saying that it's okay to not be okay and, and, and using his platform for to bring that awareness, it's, yes, it's impressive for sure. Joe's actually standing up with his hand over his heart like he's saying the Pledge of Allegiance when you said <laughs> yes, America's yeah. team. This guy's going to run a route or something. <laughs> yeah. <in> <laughs> Hey, hey, I lo- hey, there's no secret. I love the Cowboys. I, I love I love Dak. And I can't imagine the pressure it must be to be the quarterback of that team. I mean, you think about it. It's I know that we haven't seen a Super Bowl uh since you and I've been on the uh, on the department chief, but every year, hey, I'm a, I'm a Dak fan every and, and year. yeah, every every yeah, year this, is, this year. is the year. But I, I, I thank you, Dak. Thank you uh Fate Fight Finish Foundation that for for coming to us and uh, and believing in our mission, and uh, and recognizing a problem and and helping us out. Thank you. You know, Chief, this is for some of the listeners. I'm sure this is a lot to take in. In your words, if you had to do the quick bullet points on this program being successful, what are the things that makes or will make this a, a success for other agencies or departments? Find the influential leaders. You've got them. Reach out to officers before they're in a crisis. We've got to discontinue the model of waiting for us to be in a crisis before any type of support is initiated. Encourage our officers to counseling. That's it. Counseling's out there. It's available. You can do it on your phone. You can do it in person. It works. Encourage them to counseling and make that counseling convenient and affordable. Find the counselors, serve it up to our officers so they don't have to do the legwork to look for them, and get the funding to make it free for them and for their families. That's it. Chief, it's I've been trying to get you on this podcast to do an episode just with you even before you start going through your divorce whenever I first started this up. Actually, I got an old bio from you from way back then, and then you start going through the personal stuff. And you're hesitant to come on to talk about yourself or even talk about the creation of this unit. And I'm going to ask again, everything that we've already talked about and everything I mentioned with the bill that, the, you know, you working uh, with the Dak Prescott Foundation, you writing the manuscript, you being out in front of audiences speaking on this topic so passionately, what, are the, what do these achievements mean to you? I'm going to ask you again. Well, you know, I think what it means to me the most is that we were right about this need, that we were right about being proactive, and that that there's other people in, in broad ranges of, 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 you know, whether it's business or charity or, or legislation who they've validated that for us now. 
you know, you have Police Chief Magazine publishing our program and highlighting it to send it around the world. You've got a uh, a, a a not you know profit foundation that donated us one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for counseling for for our police officers and uh, for all our employees, our non sworn as well, uh, because they believed in this model and this program. And then you've got the state legislature who who um, you know has a, a sponsored a bill that that really outlines the checkpoint model that says police officers uh, that that are have proactive programs that check on officers when they go to loss of life calls. And it actually mentions the bill, the three calls that we outlined, which is fatality, car crashes, suicides and homicides, that someone will reach out to them and check on them. And if those those participating agencies that do, they become eligible for, I believe it's one point seven million in, in reimbursement for counseling, essentially making counseling available, making counseling free uh, for Texas police officers. This is this is the framework. This is our our program. And so, you know, speaking about the program at some of the national conferences over the last year was really looking for feedback. I was really trying to figure out, did we really tap into something here that nobody else did? Did we really have something that 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 could benefit? And and so I was always in search of that feedback. And I think to your question, that's what this means. It means that 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 we do have something here that that could change the standard for American policing and, and help our officers, um, you know, get to a, a better place. And, but I do, I do have to say, uh, you know, yes, you asked me to do this a couple of times and I was not, uh, I, I, the, none of this gets done, you know, by just, you know, any one person's initiative. There's a, a, a series of different things that have to happen to get, to get this done. Um, you take the bill, for example, uh, I believe that if, uh, you know, if you don't have a, a, a chief Garcia that has that, really that, you know, just that name recognition that he does, you know, bringing a, a bill to Austin with our police department and him helped us, you know, having Frederick Frazier, you know, he's the author of this, uh, this bill and, and, uh, or the sponsor of this bill. And, you know, he's, he's dynamic, he's good. And, and, and that, that helps Julio Gonzalez, our legislative affairs liaison. He took over my role as the coordinator in Austin. Um, he's good. You know, he, he, he works hard to create those those lanes and, and smooth out the areas that need to be smoothed out so that our bill can continue doing what we want it to do. And so so there's a lot of things that had to happen to get a bill written and passed through both chambers unanimously to now be heading to the governor's office. There's a lot of things that had to happen to get this manuscript written to, to be able to get it to a, a point where a publisher said, yeah, this is the this is the program we're going to highlight. And there's a lot of things that have to happen for a foundation to 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 donate one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the sole purpose of counseling to our police department. No, I you don't give yourself enough credit. And um, and I want I want to say thank you for for one. You let me be involved in this because this is something I'm passionate about. And Danny and Kent, thank you all for getting involved with this uh, so early on, because it's you know, it, it's. Y'all part of what has happened, whether it's by fate, luck, or just by design. Y'all are a big part of, of making this move forward, and uh, I'm excited to see where it's going to be a year from now. I want to point out, too, that whatever we do, I mean, you know, Chief, everybody in this room, we're closer to leaving the law enforcement first responder profession than we are just to just starting up and 
we've had our lifetime of of critical incidents and trauma and frustrations and and exposures to uh to some of the things that we wouldn't wish on our worst enemy this is what we're doing trying to do here in dallas police department is lay the groundwork for generations of officers to come after us that's why i enjoy enjoy doing this podcast memorializing uh people uh incredible people that have an amazing careers and are major contributors to society and the city of dallas and beyond to have their story out there for some young officer 20 30 years from now can be on spotify can be on apple podcast and go oh, what's this law enforcement podcast and they can hear you speak on officer wellness and the dallas police department wellness unit years ago that's where that's where people are going to be educated in perpetuity from things we put together and that's what i'm hoping and i hope that this never loses traction and the mission and vision never runs out of gas in this city because we need it this city needs it and this department needs it yeah i completely agree you know we, one of the things we we talked about over just the last year is you know this idea that um the next generation of police really create our biggest opportunity to change policing for good like we have to get their buy-in they're the they're the eventual supervisors and chiefs of of this police so we've got to give a heavy dose of of understanding to them what it is we're trying to create and get their buy-in but we also have to make sure that we use our influence our to to talk to those officers of that have the same tenure that we do uh, those are relationships that have they've been you know built through the fire they we have strong relations with them they're trusted we got a lot of scars together and and we're carrying a lot together but nobody is going to convince them other than us so you know that's why we have to we have to recognize that you know we have those leaders within our department those informal leaders we have the ability to do this but it ain't it's not going to get done by anyone else you know we've relied and i'm not going to be critical of of anyone but um you know i will say that there's been years and years of medical research that has talked about the effect of uh the stressors and effects of being a police officer um they've analyzed it and diagnosed it you know uh you know from a million different angles uh you know academia world and scholars are writing about the effects of policing and, and while it's great and we appreciate the attention and the awareness the reality is that we don't need to know how stressful this job is we're very very familiar with it we're all carrying the lumps to show it um academia world and the medical world is not going to change policing we are no one else is so if this thing's ever going to get done it's going to get done by us and every single police department that's listening to this needs to know that we're the ones who are going to get this done, and we're the ones who have to get it done. Chief, I think that's a perfect way to wrap it up. I want to thank you for coming on here finally, getting you in here. I want to thank you for your leadership and your vision and you taking this and running with it from the start and not letting up on this department, on the city, and on the country of promoting this message for generations of law enforcement uh, that's going to come through this city and beyond. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs. 
say, mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you. Never give up.